welcome to all of you here. You're all, in my book, heroes. You're all in the forefront, really soldiers in the battle for better health and nutrition and better food. And we are at a tipping point in the relationship between food and health and the environment. And I think it's safe to say that very little matters more. Uh, when I say we're at a tipping point, I mean that things are and have been getting better. But if we want to see further dramatic improvement in environment, healthcare, employment, poverty, climate change, you get the idea, I could go on. If we want to improve, in short, if we want to improve our likelihood of survival, those who value the well-being of the planet and the mental, spiritual, and physical health of human beings and other inhabitants must gain more power. This, of course, is easily said, and it's routinely said, at least since the Age of Enlightenment, but it's not easily achieved. Now, some people have said, What's a food writer doing talking about these things? Well, food has everything to do with this. All you have to do is ask the big questions, which is easy enough since the only aspect of food that you can discuss without bringing in everything else is how much fun it is to eat. And even that's becoming somewhat tainted. You can barely talk about your garden or your supermarket or the food on your table without talking about the failure of government, the dominance of corporations, the breakdown of food security, and so on. And that's what I'm talking about today. Why the American diet, corporate power, the reasons people don't like government, the reasons people should want more government rather than less, are all part of the same problem. Few people would deny that climate change, energy policy, and agriculture are at least in part food issues. Food issues that should be addressed in a comprehensive and intelligent way. Each of these topics is so important that changing one changes the other. Worsening climate change affects energy policy and the food we grow. Similarly, changes in energy usage affect agriculture and climate change. Allowing the so-called free market to determine policy in these, in these arenas has not worked. We're wrecking the environment. Our food system, if you call it a system, is a mess. And we're running out of energy resources. No matter how much sense it might make to rein in energy use, rein in climate change, and improve the way we produce our food, none of this is going to happen on a large scale until we have a government that's willing to address these issues. No matter how much sense it might make to rationalize energy use, rein in climate change, improve the food system, none of that's going to happen on a large scale without government help. So the 800-pound gorilla, when you're discussing anything that matters in food or almost anything else, is politics. And that's what means, that's what makes food not as much fun as it used to be. A democratic food system, a food system that cares about the needs of consumers, the needs of workers, the health of the land, a democratic food system can only happen in a democracy. That's tough, but the good news is that by getting to a democratic food system, <clears throat> by working towards a democratic food system, 
we can help work our way back towards an America that works, a real democracy. It starts with transparency, and it continues with reform and control. At best, this is probably a 20-year process. This is not happening other, overnight. At worst, it ends in tragedy. Either way, 50 to 100 years from now, we are going to be eating a diet that we would now call organic and locavore. The question is whether we get there gracefully, through planning, through cooperation, peacefully, or whether there's some kind of bizarre science fiction dystopic collapse. There are opportunities everywhere to move in the right direction. We can work on a personal food system without any help from anybody, and I'll get to that. But on the big scale, the big picture, we need help. We can't do it individually. It has to be done collectively. Imagine for a second that an external enemy robbed the United States of a large share of its natural resources, polluted its water and its land, starved a portion of its population while overfeeding another portion to the point of illness, sowed the seeds of cancer and other environmentally caused diseases, contributed mightily to the degradation of the environment and even the climate, and even limited the ability of the country to feed itself in the future. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? War, revenge, at least outrage. Yet all of that has been done by the current food system, run by megacorporations with way too much support from federal and state governments. How does that make us feel? On the first anniversary of the Fukushima tsunami nuclear disaster, the novelist Haruki Murakami said, nuclear power plants, which were supposed to be efficient, have instead given us a vision of hell. Substitute industrial agriculture for nuclear power plants, and the statement is equally valid. Like nuclear power, industrial agriculture appeared efficient until it became clear that it was anything but. Now our job is to change it. But we didn't invent industrial agriculture, and we can't uninvent it, at least not without help. Government's role is to help us get things done. Yet today, half the people on Social Security believe they get nothing from government programs. And we've all seen things like this. It's hard not to hate government when you feel it's taking more and giving less. This is, of course, an ongoing strategy of those who want to destroy government, reduce taxes, which in turn reduces desirable government services. And once those services are reduced, argue that the government isn't doing anything useful, and therefore taxes should be lowered again. And then complain about people who aren't paying taxes. And then pay no taxes yourself. Not incorrectly, people see government as being in bed with corporations. But can we change that? Can corporations be made to behave? You know, I'm sure, that we have the worst level of income inequality of any Western nation. And that's because the last 30 years or so have seen what amounts to a giant vacuum cleaner 
sucking money out of the pockets of the less and moderately well-off of this country into those who are the best well-off. For this, we have to thank corporate strategies and a series of governments that appear to believe that only through corporate growth can we prosper. A ridiculous notion. So, how can people regain the power that's constitutionally ours? How can we get government to help us change the food system? That's a tough question. In a minute, I'll get to it and to others that I can actually answer. <clears throat> Meanwhile, I will say that the rallying cry is to stake out positions that would benefit what used to be called the working class. That benefit what used to be called the working class and now goes by the 99%. And to garner enough political will and power to pressure the President and Congress to move resolutely on the issues that matter. That's a tall order. And that's one that's of more than passing interest to those who think of themselves as part of the food movement or the environmental movement or the foreclosed homeowners movement, or the indebted students movement, or the unemployment movement, or pretty much any movement you can name. It doesn't matter what you call the movements or the people behind them. What matters is forcing the government to act in the interests of the sometimes silent majority rather than its corporate paymasters. That struggle is as old as representative democracy itself. Oddly, coming back to food, oddly, the first thing we need help with is defining food. What's food? Um, you do see that there are two kinds of food on this screen, don't you? And you do know what they are, don't you? Because sometimes people don't. <clears throat> What's food? My dictionary says that food is any nutritious substance that people or animals eat or drink or that plants absorb in order to maintain life and growth. That definition doesn't help so much unless you define also nutritious. So I look in the same dictionary and I gather that nutritious food provides those substances necessary for growth, health, and good condition. Nutritious food provides those substances necessary for growth, not this kind of growth, health and good condition. This can help us define non-foods. And the non-food we consume most of is soda. 7% of our calories come from soda, and it's been directly responsible for what some public health officials are calling an obesity pandemic. For those of you not up on the word pandemic, it's like a really bad epidemic. It's global. An epidemic is less global. A pandemic is more global. This 7% number is kind of interesting. 7% is a very, very high percentage of our calories. Very few foods that, that give us as individual foods that give us as much as 7% of our calories. And yet the beverage industry, which is now under attack from people all over the country and with good reason, is saying, well, what's the big deal? We only get 7% of our calories from soda. 7% of our calories are from a completely non-nutritive, harmful substance. Soda, junk food, non-nutritious food in general, unidentifiable food-like objects like this right here, 
This is a UFO. The marketing of junk food to children. The presence of bad food in almost every lunchroom and cafeteria and fast food joint and so-called casual restaurant in the country. All of this can be solved by a carrot and stick program of supporting better food for more people while making it more difficult for people to buy and eat bad food. This is the opposite of the pricing structure that we have in fast food restaurants right now. A burger is a dollar. A salad is four. Flip those, you start to change things. There's another problem here. And that's the agricultural practices that make all of this stuff possible. Let me name just a couple. Indiscriminate use of fertilizer degrades groundwater and soil and uses disproportionate amounts of energy. Monocrop agriculture, which actually have dual crop agriculture through most of the Midwest, corn and soybeans, also degrades the land, increases global warming, uses disproportionate amounts of water and fertilizer, and provides not real food, but the means to make junk food and industrially produced animals. Among the biggest offenders in this huge group are what are called CAFOs, Consolidated Animal Feeding Operations. These are the kinds of places you only hear about when some kind of gross violation of what's called common practices occurs. But since there are actually very few laws governing how we treat farm animals, these egregious and theoretically isolated instances, the videos you see when people from Mercy for Animals or the Humane Society or PETA sneak into CAFOs and videotape outrageous practices. Those are really just isolated instances, but they're red flags that show us the rare, that are the rare occurrences when we can get a glimpse of what's actually going on. This brings us to a real opportunity. And that opportunity is happening right now, and that opportunity is knowledge. The more you know about what's in your food, the more you know how it's produced, the angrier you're going to be. But in order for us to have knowledge, we have to have transparency. Because many of you know what's going on. As I said at the beginning, you're the army, you're the choir, but it's the congregation that really needs to get the message. It's not because genetically, it's not necessarily, let me qualify that, it's not necessarily because genetically engineered foods are so evil, though I do believe they've done, on balance, more harm than good, and perhaps that balance will never be shifted. The makers of those foods could easily switch from foods with GMOs in them to foods without GMOs in them. And that's what they'll do. The market can't do its work without information. For example, if I tell you how many antibiotics were used in the raising of a chicken, you'd be less likely to buy and eat that chicken. What we know is that 80% of the antibiotics used in the United States are given prophylactically to animals, industrially produced animals. Why? By the way, when I started Speaking publicly about four or five years ago, I used to say 50% of antibiotics were given to animals prophylactically. And some friends came up to me and said, no, actually, it's 55%. Okay, I said 55%. And then a year later, some friends came up to me and said, actually, 60%. Well, now it's 80%. 80% of the antibiotics used in this country are given to animals prophylactically. Why? 
because the animals are raised in such miserable conditions that were they not given these antibiotics, they would get sick and die before they were killed and, and cut up. So they have to be kept alive long enough to put the meat on their frame that makes them valuable. And the way that that works, works, is to give them antibiotics. So there have to be an awful lot of antibiotics in that given chicken, but we don't know what that number is. And if we did, if we saw how many antibiotics were given to that chicken and how many antibiotic-resistant bacteria were on the skin of that chicken when you bought it in the supermarket, you'd be way less likely to buy it. It's even simpler than that. If you saw the conditions under which those chickens, cows, pigs were raised, you'd be less likely to buy them. I recognize, again, that I'm speaking to a somewhat advanced audience, people who are aware of these things, probably a large percentage of vegetarians and vegans in the audience already, or at least people who are eating less meat than they were five or 10 years ago. Um, but that is not the case in the country at large. We are eating somewhat less meat than we were 10 years ago, but we are still eating, I'll get to this in a minute too, we are still eating eight or nine billion animals per year. Industrial livestock producers don't want you to see what these conditions are like. They want to fill your screens with pictures of happy farmers caring for individual animals, like that. But that's not what it really looks like. Your hamburger comes from dozens of sources. It doesn't come from one happy cow. The same with your milk. Your Pringle contains 30% potato. That yogurt contains as much sugar as ice cream. That whole grain cereal, that granola bar, may be no better for you than Snickers. What happens? Despite parents' best intentions, the kids bug you for junk, and the addiction, that's the best word for it, folks, goes on for another generation. Another aside. In the 70s, outraged parents said, we don't want the marketing of junk to kids in TV commercials to be unlimited. We'd like to get rid of it. At that point, in a given hour, there were roughly 20 minutes of advertising. That's how it still is. Many of those 20 minutes, most, sometimes all, were filled with the marketing commercials for junk food for kids. In the 70s, a law was passed limiting commercials of junk food to kids on children's television to only, here's another only, 10 minutes per hour. Well, it's not great, but it's better than 20. Right now, a three-year-old kid who has an iPod touch or can grab his parents' iPhone or iPad or other device can go online and play a game where they're rowing down a river of milk and floating in the river of milk are Fruit Loops. That same kid, the next day, is sitting in their mom's or dad's shopping cart, and at that kid's eye level is a box of Fruit Loops. How much of that online advertising, how much of those online games are limited? Zero. That's the next big battleground. For transparency, for, for information, we need to change our buying and eating habits, of course, but we also need government regulation. We need not only to eat less junk and more good stuff, we need to demand that the government help us do that. And maybe this is a good analogy. 
it's one thing to tell you to wash your hands to prevent getting a cold, prevent contagious diseases, but you still need immunization, you still need doctors, you still need hospitals, and that's the role of the state. Government's legitimate role in helping people is often overlooked, but beyond Social Security and Medicare, you might think about smoking regulations, child labor laws, farm worker laws, restaurant worker laws, and simple things like building roads, maintaining police forces, and paying teachers, or even building sewers. Building sewers is probably the biggest public health measure of all time, and an incredibly expensive one. But you know what? As a result, chronic diseases, so-called lifestyle diseases, now kill more people than contagious diseases. Now, the arguments against these kind of regulations come mostly from the right, though there is no right and left here, actually, just right and wrong. We're told, as we almost always are when a progressive public health measure, measure is passed, that this is nanny statism. Tobacco companies said the same thing. We also hear things like, if people want to be obese, that's their prerogative. Certainly. And if people want to ride motorcycles without helmets or smoke cigarettes, that's their prerogative too. But it's the so-called nanny state's prerogative to protect the rest of us from their behavior. Obesity-related health care costs are at about $150 billion annually and climbing. Obesity causes diabetes. We are paying for all that stuff. And to loosely paraphrase Oliver Wendell Holmes, your right to harm yourself stops when I have to pay for it. Just as we all pay for the ravages of smoking, and we do, we all pay for the harmful effects of Coke, Snapple, and Gatorade. Remember, please, the definition of sugar-sweetened beverages don't meet that definition any more than do beer and tobacco, and for that matter, heroin. And they have more in common with those things than they do with carrots. Soda is not food. But right now, a tall five-year-old with a dollar can approach a machine and buy a fizzy beverage equivalent to a cup of coffee with nine teaspoons of sugar in it. And that is a 12-ounce soda. 12-ounce sodas barely are sold anymore. Just as tobacco is a nicotine delivery system, soda is a sugar delivery system. And just a few years from now, projections say that obesity-related diseases, diseases caused by soda and other UFOs, will kill more people than lung cancer. Meanwhile, soda is more popular than water, and we each drink, on average, a quart of it per day. The amount of soda we drink has doubled since the 50s. And at the same time, our per capita consumption of high fructose corn syrup has gone from zero, didn't exist in the 60s, to 60 pounds. That's an increase of about 200 calories per person per day, or 10% of our average intake. Guess what? Our average weight has increased over 20% as a result. That's why healthcare professionals talk about a pandemic. Added sugar 
as will be obvious when we look back in 20 or maybe 50 years, is the tobacco of the 21st century. And if you believe that limiting our right to purchase soda is a slippery slope, one that will lead to defining which foods are nutritious and which aren't, and which ones government funds should be used to subsidize and which ones they shouldn't, you're right. It's the beginning of better public health policy. But, but why would we consume bad substances that aren't food? Increasing amounts of them, even when they're proven to cause obesity and disease. Why would we allow our children to do so? Because, for example, in the last couple of decades, a trillion dollars, a trillion, has been spent on getting us to make the wrong choices in food. Soda marketers spend a billion dollars a year selling us on soda. A billion. Almost nothing is spent encouraging the consumption of fruits and vegetables. Isn't that great? Almost nothing is spent encouraging the consumption of fruits and vegetables, and as a result, one in four, get this, okay, one in four meals contains an unprocessed vegetable. One in four American meals contains an unprocessed vegetable. That percentage would be worse. It would be one in five, except in counting, we include the lettuce on top of a hamburger. As a result of that, my best guess is that 10% of our calories come from unprocessed fruits and vegetables. And as a result of that, more than half of the U.S. is overweight or obese, and the trend is still increasing. All of this, as you probably know, is not only bad for us, it's horrible for the environment. Industrially produced livestock is either the highest or second highest contributor to atmosphere-altering gases. And global meat consumption is projected to double, although there isn't the land or water or fertilizer for that. We kill, as I said, about 10 billion animals a year. That's just the US. And if you strung them together, chickens, cows, and pigs, they'd stretch the equivalent of here to the moon and back five times. The costs of this production of junk food and of industrial livestock in general are subsidized by us. And they're hidden costs, and they're forestalled costs. Global warming is one consequence. Water and land shortages are others. There's general environmental damage, and of course, there's the so-called lifestyle diseases. Someone, we or our children, is going to pay those costs. Now, you might ask why I'm picking on soda and industrially produced meat. Shouldn't we be worried about the things that make food bad? things like fat and sugar and salt. Isn't meat good because it's protein? The problem with that kind of talk is that it isolates nutrients and it makes things far more complicated than they need to be. It also enables big food to take its hyper-processed junk, load it up with fiber, contend that it's low salt, and sell it to you as healthy. These are not photoshopped, by the way. These are actual photos taken by me. Meat, even industrially produced meat, does of course provide nutrients. One might even contend that small amounts of it could be part of a decent diet. Except for the damage it does to the earth. 
and except for the damage that treating animals like widgets does to our souls, and except for the damage that it does to our health, and by extension the damage it does to our economy. The bottom line, the bottom line is this. We should be encouraging people to eat real food. We should be discouraging them from eating non-food. But you can't expect corporations to see the light. It's not that they're evil, or it's not that they're entirely evil. It's because it's their job to maximize profits now, without concern for the grandchildren of its shareholders or anyone else. If the corporation provides jobs while doing so, well, that's a nice benefit. But the corporation's under no obligation to its shareholders or anyone else to do so. If the corporation pays taxes, well, that's nice for the rest of us. But if they can find a way to avoid doing so, as General Electric did in 2010, that's within their mission. If the corporation manages to do good while doing well, that's fantastic. But as we all know, it's also the exception. So as to the question, how do you get corporations under control? The answer is, you have to force them. You can't expect them to become moralistic. You have to guilt trip them or boycott them or use other like tactics. When Bettina Siegel, who blogs about food lunches, started a petition to get pink slime out of kids' foods, the thing went viral. Pink slime was gone. That showed once again that we can You know, the New York Times reporter Michael Moss did a big story about pink slime in 2009. And it had an impact among people who read the New York Times, but it didn't have an impact on the consumption of pink slime. When Bettina Siegel started blogging about it in her kid's lunch, millions and millions of people became outraged. ABC News picked up on it, the Times picked up on it again, everybody picked up on Twitter, Twitter. And BMI, which is the company that produces pink slime, is practically bankrupt. We can change things sometimes without even leaving our homes. We can pressure corporations to do the right thing more often. We might even be able to get the government to do its job of protecting us by shoring up defense. Not just defense from imagined foreign threats, defense from those amoral corporations. The real problem right now is getting government to do its job, and its job is to help, it, help us make our lives better. The USDA is a perfect example. It has two jobs. What's difficult is getting the USDA to do the half of its job that's supposed to encourage Americans to eat well. It has no problem with the half of its job that boosts industrial agriculture. It does that brilliantly and supports the production of processed food at the expense of real food. As evidenced by the subsidies to agribusiness compared to those for what they call specialty foods. Specialty foods, of course, means fruits and vegetables. It's also evidenced by the USDA's refusal to approve proposals that encourage the definition of foods, because that's in part what we need, an acknowledgment that food is nourishment, and that nourishment sustains us rather than making us ill, and that if a UFO makes you ill, it should not only not be subsidized, it should be disincentivized. This isn't just about soda. You can make the same argument about a variety of non-foods, from potato chips to cheeseburgers. There's evidence increasing that junk food is addictive. 
and no one is ever more than a minute or two away from a reminder that you can have it your way or that there's always Coca-Cola. That has to change. I'm going to switch gears for a bit because defining food is something you can do for yourself and I've been promising to talk about this for a while. In 2007, I was 40 pounds overweight, had high cholesterol, high blood sugar, sleep apnea, knees bad enough for surgery and bad enough to cause me to stop running for the first time since I'd taken it up 30 years before that. Now this is a story many middle-aged people could tell you because this stuff sneaks up on you. But at the time, a doctor who I've known and loved for 30 or 35 years said to me, this is a little bit different than it's been. Your blood numbers have always been good, but now they're not so good. And I think what you should do to fix this is become a vegan. Needless to say, I was in somewhat of a state of shock. I said, um, you know who I am. Not only do I write about food, but I'm kind of a bacon addict. But he said, you're a smart guy. You'll figure something out. Before I, want, before I go on, I want to talk about veganism a little bit. Veganism has gotten a ton of press recently, both good and bad. But to me, veganism is a little bit like nirvana, a distant, ideal, and almost unachievable goal. Of course, a number of people actually become vegans. But my feeling is that veganism should be thought of as nirvana, one of those things where you say the journey is more important than the destination. Because barring catastrophe, at no time in the foreseeable future are enough Americans going to become vegan to make much of a difference. But if we look at veganism as one end of a spectrum, the other end being the supersize me guy, Morgan Spurlock, all that really matters for every individual in the room here, in the audience, watching online, in the United States, in the world, all that really matters is that every individual move from this end of the spectrum towards that end of the spectrum. Every individual... All that really matters diet-wise is that we eat more plants and more real foods based on plants and less meat, other, other animal products, and hyper-processed junk. Now, what didn't I just say? I didn't say don't eat any meat. I didn't say don't eat any hyper-processed junk. I didn't even say don't drink any soda. I didn't say become a locavore. I didn't say eat only organic food. And I didn't say shop at Whole Foods. I said, or at least I implied, I said change the proportions of the things in your diet, period. This brings us to what you might call your personal food movement or your personal food policy. It might be nice, your personal food policy might be to forego a cheeseburger for a salad once a week. It might be to have rice and beans instead of chicken. It might be to have oatmeal instead of bacon and eggs. It doesn't have to be formal, although it can be. The important thing is to keep moving in the right direction down that spectrum, day by day, month by month, keep moving in that direction. It helps, it's helped me, it helps to think about this 
as you think about exercise. Everybody has some kind of personal exercise policy. You might say, I'm, a, I'm exercising five times this week. And then you might only exercise four. In a bad week, you might only exercise two. In a really bad week, you're traveling, early morning meetings, late night flights, whatever, you might not exercise at all. That doesn't mean you say, okay, I'm no longer exercising. Doesn't mean you say, I'm no longer a person who exercises. It means you say, I've got to do better than that next week. I'm going to do better than that next week. And if you have a bad month, I'm going to do better than that next month. And the food policy is the same thing. Here's how I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat more plants. How am I going to do that? I'm going to do that in some way that I figure out. I'll get to mine in a second. I didn't do it this week. It doesn't mean that the policy is bad or that you're not interested in the policy. It means that that wasn't an ideal week. Next week will be better. So, what's my story? When Sid, my doctor, said to me, you ought to become a vegan, and I said, Pfft. and he said, figure something out. I did figure something out. And what I figured out is a little unconventional and perhaps a little weird, and probably people will laugh. But it's an example of the kind of things that you can do. I decided, and it, there's not enough time for me to go into my own particular neuroses and why this works well for me. I decided that I would become a vegan before 6 in the evening. That I would, during the day, eat only plant foods and eat non-processed plant foods. You know there's this form of veganism called cheeganism where you eat, like, lousy food but you're a vegan. Like, Fritos are vegan, right? So, you can live on Fritos and you're a vegan. Fritos and Coke, for that matter. I became a very, very strict vegan from morning till night. I ate only unprocessed fruits and vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts, and seeds. No white pasta, no bread, and certainly no junk. No meat, of course. No animal products of any kind. I ate that way. I still do this, by the way. It's going on six years. I ate that way from, well, I'm only benefiting me. <laughs> I ate that way from morning until night. And then at night, I do whatever the hell I want. I'm not kidding. So I might have a steak, I might have dessert, I might have a cocktail, I might have wine, I might have all of the above. Um, that's what works for me. I'm not saying that would work for you, although it's an interesting tactic and many people that I know have used it. And for me, I lost 35 pounds, my cholesterol's normal, my sleep apnea went away, my blood sugar's normal, I'm running again, my knees don't hurt, blah, blah, blah. So it all worked. So that was great. So that's obviously enough positive reinforcement to stay with it. And I have friends who've done it and have done it um, successfully. But I have other friends who say, okay, I'm only eating meat on weekends. Or I'm only eating junk food on weekends. Or I'm only eating meat four times a month. Or I'm only eating meat four times a week. Because minor changes are really important too. A 10% change is really important, and a 10% change this year followed by a 10% change the next year, well, you all studied compound interest in school. So okay, we've looked at the big picture, the sort of political picture. 
And we've looked at the micro picture, the sort of personal food policy. What is there, if we are the army of people who are trying to make change, what are the targets out there right now? What are the things we should be looking at? Obviously, I believe in things that I believe in soda taxes and any other measure that will disincentivize um, the consumption of, of bad foods. What are some of these things? What specifically can we be talking about? Well, we have to make it hard to market junk food to kids, really hard. We have to make it illegal to sell soda to kids, and we certainly have to stop dispensing it in schools. In fact, in fact, it wouldn't hurt to take vending machines out of schools altogether. We also need to allow fewer vending machines elsewhere. There is an alternative, however, we could use vending machines to dispense real food. We, this has actually been done in some places. We need to tax soda the way that we do cigarettes. We need to demonize soda the way that we have demonized cigarettes. We need, on the positive side, to subsidize the production and sale and purchase of real foods, especially fruits and vegetables. We need the USDA to think about these things as everyday foods, not as specialty foods. In fact, meat is a specialty food. We need more farmers. We need more small and medium-sized farms. We need fewer people growing 2,000 acres of corn. We need to work together, in short, to demonize bad food and to encourage good food. We need to lead by example. When I say we need to lead by example, I mean that we need to say to our friends, you changed your light bulbs. How about eating a freaking salad? We need to fix labeling, which needs to be honest. We need to subsidize farmers' markets. We need to subsidize indoor markets, too. We need to be able to support direct sale by farmers, by fishers, even by hunters. We need to provide incentives for people to eat better and disincentives for them to eat worse. This is the way this picture should look. Chocolate chip cookies should cost $2. Apples should cost a dime. Soda should cost $4, and water should be free. In short, as I said, we have to subsidize both traditional and progressive food ways and desubsidize those that produce non-food or bad food. If we do this, we're leaders in a new worldwide movement. But if we can't do this, if we can't get soda taxes passed, if we can't eliminate corporate subsidies, if we can't even fix school lunches, if we can't help poor people eat better, you and I can still set an example by moving to a plant-heavy diet. We can move down that spectrum. 
we can begin to eat like people of earlier generations and avoid eating like real Americans. We can move from getting 10% of our calories from fresh fruits and vegetables towards getting 90%. We can also try to act like a real society, an organization for mutual benefit. We do have a moral obligation to each other to move from a consumer-driven society, from a profit-driven society, to one in which we assume responsibility for determining how to help other people think sustainably, how to help other people shop and cook, and how to help other people eat in a way that was once taken for granted, sanely, in tune with tradition and in tune with the planet's resources. As I said at the beginning, 50, or at the most 100 years from now, we're all going to be eating a plant-based diet. Whether that happens through catastrophe or in a peaceful, sustainable, life-giving way is based on whether we make the right choices now and how we fight in this struggle together. Thank you. We have a bit of a spontaneous um, surprise for you at this point. Uh, Mr. Bittman is going to answer a few questions that we have pulled from students on Facebook. So, okay. putting you on the spot. All right, first of all, can you say a little more about GMOs and uh, maybe how our students can talk about that to their clients? Well, um, I don't think that GMOs are particularly uh, 
a huge issue in and of themselves. They were, they were and are heralded as a new technology that's going to next green revolution, it's going to save the world, and blah, blah, blah. And there's almost no evidence that that's going to happen. Now, they may, in fact, increase yields, although there's no evidence that that's happened really either. And they, in fact, have not been shown to really be any more effective than traditional hybridization techniques. Neither are they frankenfoods. They have given rise to a whole new crop of superweeds that take even more pesticides, herbicides, sorry, to kill them, and to superbugs for that matter. That's a problem, but that's not an insurmountable problem. The thing to me about GMOs is that they are a symbol. They're a symbol of things in the food production world that are being hidden from us. The important thing is to make that clear. If we know that GMOs are in stuff, we can eat them or not. We can use that food or not. If we don't know, we don't have that choice. It's the choice that's important. And as I said, GMOs are the tip of the iceberg. You show people how animals are raised, meat production will fall like a stone. So. Great. <laughs> so what's your story, and how did you get started? Um, well, it's a long story because I'm old. Um, but um, I started cooking. I grew up in New York so that I was exposed to many different kinds of food. I'm going to see if I can do the 60-second version of this story. And um, I started cooking when I was in my 20s because I moved to Massachusetts where the food was so abysmal I had to cook out of self-defense. And um, through my 20s, not that I have anything against Massachusetts, through my 20s um, I continued to cook and in my 30s I became a food writer. Through my 30s and 40s it was clear to me that the quality of food that I was eating was declining. And I became something of a locavore, which was just a way of saying, how do I get better food into my kitchen? And that was by dealing with local farmers and by gardening. Um, and into my 50s, which let's say was 10 or 12 years ago, into my 50s, it became clear to me that um, the writing was on the wall. We could not eat the way, we could not eat what I call a standard American diet, and SAD spells said. Um, we couldn't keep eating that way, and instead of us changing to eat the way, say, the Chinese eat, which was a healthy diet, the Chinese have been changing to eat the way we're eating, which is an unhealthy diet. That's the wrong direction. Um, so I wrote a book called How to Cook Everything Vegetarian, not because I wanted to be a vegetarian, but because I wanted to. Um, be more in that world and understand it better. And it was at the end of writing that book, more or less, when I had my little personal health crisis, and at the same time, when the UN came out with a report called Livestock's Long Shadow, which said that 18% of greenhouse gases are caused directly caused by industrial livestock production. That was a turning point for me, and at that, at that time, I decided I wanted to write more and act more politically. I wanted to talk more about um, why eating is important, why food is important. In what ways can health coaches make a difference? Well, as I said, you are the, I mean, <laughs> ideally, you take this message to everybody. And, um, you know, I, I think that 5 maybe 10% of the United States is, is aware of this message, is in tune with this message. You know, there are obviously disagreements, areas where we might not be in complete accord, but the fundamental message that the proportions of foods in our diets are off and that there are reasons for this, both political and personal, 
and that all of that needs to change. That basic message is probably agreed with by, say, 5 or 10 percent of the people in the United States. If we can reach a percentage, a sizable minority of people, 15, 20, 25 percent, we can then force government and corporations to act differently. If each of you is in tune with that message and has an impact on 5 or 10 or 20 or 50 people a year, that you can turn on to that, huge difference. That kind of leads into this next question. What's the most effective way to work with our local government to create policy change in our food supply system? I think there are, I think there are two or three things. And I love this question. And actually, I wish I anticipated it. Um, I think parents should work on school lunches. That's, if, you're, if you have a kid, If you have a kid in public school, there's nothing better for you to do than to start, you know, hounding that school board to get on board with a good school lunch program. It can be done, it is done, it's not easy, it's a huge struggle, but it's also a great organizing tool and a great way to talk about food in your community. And so not only is it, shall we, shall we say, a selfish act in the good sense, a selfish act in that you would be trying to improve the food your own kid is eating on a daily basis. It's altruistic, you're doing it for other kids, but it's also an organizing tool. You're showing people that there is power on the municipal level. A lot of this stuff, you know, it's not just California. A lot of this stuff is going to happen on a municipal level. The soda tax struggle is going, the two cities that are closest to passing soda tax right now are nondescript cities. No one in the country has heard of of 100,000 people, but when Richmond passes a soda tax, so will Berkeley, so will Oakland, and as a friend of mine said, you don't think San Francisco is going to be out-liberalized by the East Bay, do you? So that will take care of the Bay Area. When El Monte passes a soda tax, that will take care of, um, uh, what do they call it, the Southland, the Los Angeles area, and that will spread. Those are, that's an issue people can work on, too. There's, there's dozens of issues. I, you know, I, it's really important to vote in the presidential election, okay. But in the long run, it's critical to work on the municipal and state level, and that's something that everybody can do. Thank you very much for Thank sharing. You. Again, Mr. Mark Pittman. Thank you all. Integrative Nutrition, we strive to give you the most up-to-date information on health and nutrition in the most unbiased way. Nutrition is a unique field as there will always be opposing views. In most cases, there is not necessarily a right or wrong view, and it's not black or white. And in many cases, you'll find that there's plenty of scientific research to back up both opposing claims. We understand that this can be confusing not only for you, but for your clients. That's why it's important to be exposed to different theories and points of view. Although you may not agree with everything you're exposed to in this field, we encourage you to hear all the facts and then make your own judgment and determine what works for you. In this class, Michael Jacobson explores a few controversial topics, such as GMOs, supplementation, and the role of saturated fats in the diet.
These topics may come up in sessions with potential clients, and it's good to be prepared. Tune in with an open mind, and remember, knowledge is power. Well, hello, and welcome. I'm Michael Jacobson. I'm the executive director of the Center for Science in the Public Interest in Washington, D.C. CSPI is a nonprofit consumer advocacy organization. And you may know, if you don't know of us, you probably know about some of the things we've done over the years. We're the group that led the efforts to get the nutrition label on food packages. Uh, we led the effort to get trans fat out of the food supply, uh, to improve school lunches, to get a, a federal definition for the term organic. Uh, and we published the Nutrition Action Health Letter, which is the largest circulation health newsletter in the world. Uh, and you could find it from, uh, more information about us on, on the web. So a lot of what we do is on food safety and nutrition. We write about it. We get on radio and television. We write books. Uh, and especially lobby Congress, press, the Food and Drug Administration, or Department of Agriculture for new regulations to try to solve some of the problems in our food supply have a healthier food supply for everybody, even if you don't know much about nutrition, because it comes automatically if the trans fats, say, are eliminated or the school lunches are healthier. Uh, so I thought I would talk today about several of the more controversial issues that come up. Um, and these are nutrition, a couple of points about nutrition. Dietary supplements, very popular, and agricultural biotechnology that leads to genetically engineered foods. There's been a huge amount of information about those topics and more generally about nutrition in the last you know, 30, 40 years or so. There are huge numbers of studies that have led many scientists and public health officials to conclusions about the kinds of diets that are worth eating, things that are worth avoiding, uh, some things about uh, agriculture and the changes that uh, result in the food supply. So the three topics I've chosen are, I chose because there's a lot of misinformation about them. And I want to talk about those specific things and then maybe more generally about what do you do when you see something new? You open the newspaper and say, oh my god, I didn't know that. It overturns 50 years of, of conventional wisdom. So let me just say, uh, let me start with nutrition. And it's a good time to talk about it because there have been a couple of very widely publicized studies. One study was on salt and another on saturated fat. Um, Salt is probably the single most dangerous thing in our food supply. If Americans could cut their sodium consumption in half from 4,000 to 2,000 milligrams per day, that would save about 100,000 lives per year. And that's according to many studies. The University of California at San Francisco published a very detailed study on the lives that could be saved and the dollars that could be saved if the whole country switched to a lower sodium food supply. And that study was not the first. There have been, um, uh, that, that's built on a whole body of research. 
animal studies, then uh, comparisons between countries, uh, clinical studies where people are fed different amounts of salt or sodium, uh, and then uh, there are scientists who have tens of thousands of, are following tens of thousands of people, what they eat and what their health outcomes are. And you may have heard of the nurses' health study, uh, the health professionals' study, and, and many other studies. And with the conclusion of those studies is everybody needs a little bit of salt. But practically everybody in modern nations with processed foods, which is Japan, North America, Europe, uh, and some parts of, of uh, Latin America and uh, Asia and Africa, uh, were awash in salt. So the general advice is cut down as much as you can. And it's extremely hard because salt is everywhere. Um, so uh, in early 2014, a study came out saying that if you cut down on if, to very low amounts of salt, the, the levels that the National Academy of Sciences has recommended, let's say 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams a day, you don't have a reduced risk of heart attacks and strokes, the main risks from high sodium diets. You have an increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. And that, that study uh, got in the news um, because it's kind of a man-bites-dog study, totally unexpected. It's um, um, goes contrary to what all the bigwigs in Washington and universities have been saying for so many years. When you see a study like that that contradicts con conventional wisdom, 50 years of other research, you have to be very skeptical about it. And with this study, it turns out that the scientists made some basic mistakes. Uh, and basic mistakes include things like, um, first, not having accurate data on how much salt or sodium the people were actually consuming. Because that information comes from dietary recall, where uh, a nutritionist or other person sits down to somebody and says, what did you eat yesterday? Tell me everything. And you don't remember everything. And you especially forget the junkier foods, soda pop, potato chips, and so on. So typically, the people who are consuming the smallest amount of sodium are also consuming the fewest calories. And the calorie levels are unrealistically low. They couldn't have been consuming this many people, a 1,000 calories a day or so. And if you say you're eating less food, fewer calories, yes, there's going to be less sodium. So those people really, uh, they didn't have the accurate data on those people. Um, and when you look at the, the surveys themselves, at the, at the information that the researchers have, so somebody says, I ate uh, at a Chinese restaurant. And so the researcher carefully writes that down. But they don't know how much salt and soy sauce the Chinese restaurant is using. They have old data, inaccurate data, that uh, and typically much smaller servings that people actually consume. Because, you know, you get go to a Chinese restaurant, any restaurant practically, and you get huge portions. So the data don't 
include that kind of information. And it's one of those things, garbage in, garbage out. The computer is working, but the information it gives you is inaccurate. Um, and the, uh, turns out those researchers who did the study do the same kind of study every several years, and it's the same inherent mistakes. It's the same methodology. And, what, and that leaves kind of the bulk of scientists in the field kind of um, um, like the um, groundskeepers at a, at a circus going after the elephant, shoveling up the dirt. And, um, uh, and then kind of the controversy subsides and we're kind of back to normal. Um, something similar uh, happened in another study early in um, 2014 that had to do with saturated fat. Like with salt, there's decades of research showing that saturated fat, the kind of fat that occurs in animal products, cheese, uh, beef, whole milk, contributes to heart disease. And if people are going to be eating fat, it's far better to eat polyunsaturated fat, the kind that's in canola oil, or soybean oil, or corn oil. So there was a study that showed that the, the people, that there was no connection between how much saturated fat somebody consumed and how much heart disease they had. This, uh, and this study was interesting because it was a meta-analysis. And a meta-analysis is where you take a lot of similar studies, and you combine them into one large analysis, a meta-analysis, and it gives you greater sensitivity. It makes it oftentimes easier to pick up a problem because you have a larger number of people. Um, and this was almost a repeat of a study that came out a couple of years ago that came up with uh, the opposite conclusion, that saturated fat caused was associated with heart disease. So why the difference? There was one key study that was different, that the first study, the first meta-analysis did not include, but the second one did include. And it was a study done in Sydney, Australia. It was um, where people, some people, the comparison was, was between saturated fat and polyunsaturated fat. Bad fat to good fat. Well, in the Sydney Heart Study, the good fat was a margarine high in trans fat. Trans fat is the most harmful fat there is. And you know, we've been told to eat margarine. Well, it turned out that the trans fat in the margarine promotes heart disease. And so when you add that one study to, the, to that gamish of seven other studies, it can't, the, all the other studies show a benefit of switching from saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat. Except when you add in the one that, with, where people switch from saturated to trans fat, there people had an increased risk of heart disease that canceled out those decreases from the other studies. So that was the key difference, the key mistake. And just stupid to include. But, you know, man bites dog. Saturated fat does not increase the risk of heart disease. Saturated fat is as good as polyunsaturated fat, or the other way around, polyunsaturated fat is no better than saturated fat. So forget what you read over the last 30 years. Forget what everybody says, what the big bigwigs say. And
next study uh, was quickly, roundly criticized by some by the the leading heart disease researchers in this country. And I hope that that new study dies a quick death because it just confuses things, muddies the water, leads people to say, I don't know what to think anymore. I'm just going to eat anything, anything I like. And uh, people care about their health. It's not the right attitude because study really does have a tremendous impact on our health. Um, you can't analyze every study in great detail. Uh, and in that last study I mentioned on saturated fat, the fact that one of those studies used margarine high in trans fat wasn't in the basic publication itself. You had to go to a supplement that's on the internet, and I think it was the 14th table in the supplement, and look at the footnote where it discloses. How is anybody supposed to figure that out? So what are you going to do? Um, and I think the safest thing for the average person to do and for health professionals to rely upon is to go back to the dietary guidelines for Americans, which is America's basic nutrition policy. It has, it's updated every five years and has good, solid advice that, where there's a consensus. Um, and that's what I would do if I were person just wondering, hey, what should I tell my clients? What should I eat myself? So let's leave it at that for nutrition. And let me get on to another controversial thing, which is dietary supplements. You know, there are thousands of them. And the whole dietary supplement industry and craze really started in the 1970s when Linus Pauling, one of the only people to hold two Nobel Prizes, said, Vitamin C can cure the common cold and maybe prevent cancer. And so drugstores quickly ran out of vitamin C. Health food stores touted vitamin C, the panacea, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he didn't have much evidence to go on, but it was a very interesting hypothesis. It kind of led people to think more broadly, and he wrote about it, that large doses, mega doses of vitamins and minerals could have unsuspected, very beneficial effects. And so there were a lot of, that triggered a lot of research. And then the herbal supplement industry came around and said, the Chinese and others have been using herbal supplements for hundreds of, or thousands of years, and they have all of these benefits. And the supplement industry started touting those. And, you know, again, Caveat emptor, be aware, some supplements are really beneficial. And there is good, solid evidence that the supplements protect people's health. Uh, calcium can help prevent or treat osteoporosis, and prevent it from getting worse. It's the kind of thing that people should be consuming. We should get them in our diet. It's one of the reasons uh, soda pop isn't as good as milk. It doesn't have any calcium. Folic acid during pregnancy can prevent neural tube defects um, in the brain. And if a kid is born with an open uh, neural tube, it's probably a very early death. And it turns out that folic acid can prevent that. And that's why it's not, we're not really, the uh, 
health officials don't just rely on people consuming folic acid tablets, but added folic acid to white flour along with some B vitamins that had been added 75 years ago to help prevent certain deficiency diseases. So you know, some supplements are uh, really good for you. But when we've looked at herbal supplements in particular, and some of the other supplements, like uh, oh, ginkgo, ginseng, St. John's wort, you've heard of all these things. Um, you go to a health food store, and there are hundreds of these packages, all saying helps uh, protect the immune system, helps pre prevent heart disease, or builds a stronger heart. You know, countless claims. When you look at the evidence, it's almost never there. When we contact companies that make these claims, they say, oh, yes, there are many studies. And we say, oh, send them to us. And we look at, and sometimes they'll send them to us. And it is um, so pathetic. You know, tiny studies, oftentimes uncontrolled studies, studies often sponsored by the companies themselves, Many studies are done overseas where you just don't know how well they're conducted, how well they're blinded so people don't know if they're getting a placebo or the supposed active agent. And then some companies won't give you the data, which makes you wonder all the more. Did they just make this up from whole cloth or what? But uh, it's very difficult for the government to go after these companies. Partly, so many of them are fly-by-night companies they're registered in the Bahamas, and then when somebody goes after them, they change to the Bermuda, they change their name, um, change the packaging, uh, and there's countless of these companies. Um, there, um, but our general conclusion was be really skeptical of these claims because there's so little evidence that any of them, have, any of the claims, have been substantiated by solid scientific evidence. Um, and to make it worse, there's some research showing that some supplements could actually be dangerous. My favorite example is beta carotene, which is the gives some of the color to carrots and other uh, vegetables. And beta carotene is good. You know, we need a little bit of it. It can help prevent blindness and so on. But too much beta carotene, like the kind you, could, you can get in some dietary supplements uh, can increase the risk of lung cancer in smokers. Nobody knows the mechanism, but you know something good in large doses can be bad. St. John's wort and other, certain other supplements interact with drugs that people take, you know, pharmaceuticals to uh, treat illnesses. Um, and so that's one of the problems. Another problem is that a few studies have been done that analyze chemically the dietary, what's in these pills. And in many cases, there was none or very little of the claimed substance. These, diet, these herbal supplements didn't even have the herb, you know, so, which is good in many cases because it won't cause any side effects. So our conclusion was just uh, ignore most of these claims for dietary supplements, talk to a doctor, make sure that there's a real, there's a need and that the supplement provides a benefit. Um, but also one caution, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because some supplements really provide good benefits.
and let's take advantage of those. Um, and let me get to a, a third topic that um, is, um, what should we say? Let me scare you. Frankenfoods. Everybody afraid of GMOs, genetically engineered foods, agricultural biotechnology? Um, if you listen to critics like Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, um, you'd be led to believe that these, uh, that foods containing genetically engineered ingredients from genetically engineered crops are really dangerous, and you should really avoid them. The products, food should be labeled if they contain those ingredients. And even uh, just as bad, not only might it harm you, it may destroy the environment. And that's a serious consideration. Um, so, uh, and it's gotten, the criticism has gotten to the point where it's really politically correct to oppose genetic and agricultural biotechnology, which is uh, what the agriculture part is, and foods that contain ingredients from genetically engineered crops. Well, um, I hate to disappoint you, but genetically engineered crops have been raised for 20 years. They're on, on 150 or 200 million acres here. There isn't one shred of evidence that a genetically engineered crop has led to any health problems. From sugar, canola, um, corn, soybeans, those are the main ones. Um, not one shred of evidence, not even a hiccup, not a cough. One uh, potential reason for that is that many foods that would be labeled as genetically engineered because they contain soybean oil or sugar from um, sugar beets or canola oil or, uh, or corn oil, say, those foods, they're highly purified. You know, sugar must be 99.999% pure sugar. Not one bit of genetically engineered DNA, not one bit of genetically engineered protein. Just plain sugar. And the same thing with soybean oil. Uh, and to say something like soybean oil is non-GMO, all soybean oil doesn't have any genetically engineered ingredients in it. And GMO, genetically modified organism, which sounds like, oh, there's one over there. It's crawling along the floor. Uh, there are no organisms. There's no living creatures in these things. And even if there was DNA or protein, those get digested in the mouth, like all the other proteins that we consume. So there's no health harm, but there have been real bona fide benefits from genetically engineered crops, like many farmers are able to use less toxic herbicides. And in growing um, cotton, uh, much less uh, insecticides are used, which is great for farmers, great for the environment. Farmers have uh, uh, high, higher yields in some cases. And we've seen this especially on studies done in China, where yields have been greatly increased, harm to wildlife greatly decreased, farmers' income greatly increased, and pesticide poisonings of farmers and their families greatly decreased. So kind of across the board benefits. 
And then that's not to say that um, everything totally is hunky-dory. Like with not agriculture, without using genetically engineered seeds, there can be uh, environmental problems. You know, farms destroy the environment, you know, just for uh, uh, starters, any farm, because they rip up the natural ecosystem. Uh, and the uh, overuse of, of uh, genetically engineered crops and herbicides that are used with those crops have led to weeds that are resistant to the, to the herbicides. And the herbicide that's normally used, called glyphosate, is a very safe one. Uh, so some farmers have to, they start with glyphosate, but there's some weeds that aren't killed, so they go to a, a more toxic herbicide, like they had been using 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, and, and that kind of a problem needs to be solved to prevent these herbicide-resistant weeds. But it's not necessarily, there's smarter ways to do it than giving up the benefits as genetically engineered crops. Um, what really troubles the critics is not the risks, because the risks environmental could be managed, human health, there haven't been any, and those presumably could be minimized. It's, uh, it's the behavior of the companies, starting with Monsanto. That the behavior has been reprehensible, where companies prevent researchers from using their seeds to do independent studies. Um, they make it harder, in some cases, for farmers to buy non-genetically engineered seeds because those are cheaper. Um, they have prevented Congress from passing a law that would require genetically engineered crops to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration. You know, formal approval. Currently, the approval, it's not really an approval. It's a um, kind of a, um, a tacit saying, oh, it looks OK. We don't have any objections. And overseas, these same companies are giving much more data to the governments of Japan and the European Union than they do to the American government, because those countries formally approve crops. And I think it would be very reassuring to the American public if the Food and Drug Administration had a more formal role in approving the crops. I'd say when you see all this criticism of, of genetically engineered crops, health risks, environmental harm, risks in, uh, from the products themselves, be very skeptical, because there just isn't the evidence. And two of the most prominent recent defenders of genetically engineered ingredients are the former campaign organizers for Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, where they said, as they learned more, they realized that these crops had huge benefits and were not threats to the public's health. Um, um, and so you know, I thought that was very telling that these people who are leading the campaigns have now joined the other side, really. Not saying industry's behavior has been fine, but saying, don't worry so much about the crops. Uh, so uh, again, you know, what, what are you going to do? And um, about your own diet and helping clients? And to some extent, I think you have to go with your gut feeling. If something sounds too good to be true, like with these dietary supplement claims, or maybe too bad to be true, like all the, the uh, hazards supposedly attributed to frankenfoods, 
um, take it with a grain of salt. You could use salt for that. And, uh, and look into it carefully. Um, if you're going to adopt, if you're going to believe some of this, don't go on one study. Make sure that there's kind of a body of research, more than one researcher. The independent researchers have evaluated the, the, the studies, and the researchers should be independent. You don't want industry. You don't want necessarily a campaigner uh, like me, even though I think I'm really objective about it. You know, ideally, some objective uh, university professors who are not in the pocket of industry or the National Academy of Sciences, some entity like that. What you do probably should depend on the, mag on the, the amount of evidence there is. I remember 20 years ago, when we, or 30 years ago, when we looked at trans fat, we didn't see a problem because there wasn't any evidence. And we said, it doesn't look bad. Uh, and then in the early 1990s, the first good studies were done showing that trans fat raises the bad cholesterol. And, and we thought, hmm, that's a real problem. And the studies were very well done. And we asked the Food and Drug Administration to require labeling of trans fat. And then, um, and then by 2003, it took 10 years, the FDA did require trans fat labeling. Meanwhile, the evidence that trans fat was a major cause of heart disease, causing tens of thousands of deaths, had built up to the point where it became accepted by the Food and Drug Administration and others. Denmark had banned partially hydrogenated oil, the source of artificial trans fat. And then we called on the government we said labeling wasn't sufficient. There's enough evidence to get it out of the food supply completely. And you could do that in some cases where some ingredient or additive is just unnecessary. You can use others. Salt is even more harmful, but we wouldn't say ban salt. You know, it's, it's not necessary. It's not going not to happen. Um, and keep as your basic diet what is recommended in dietary guidelines for Americans, what the Heart Association Cancer Society recommend lots of fruits and vegetables, uh, whole grains when you have grain products, avoid white flour, uh, seafood, low-fat uh, uh, dairy products, low-fat uh, uh, poultry, and cut down on sugary foods, you know, all the pastries, soda pop, and so on. Uh, don't necessarily have to avoid them completely. And salt, you don't have to avoid it completely, but cut way down. That, in a nutshell, is a healthy diet. And if you can stick to that, notwithstanding the temptations everywhere, I think you'll be much the healthier for it. And your friends, relatives, and clients would benefit also. So thank you so much. I enjoyed being with you. Controversial Topics in Nutrition by Michael Jacobson, PhD. New research is constantly being published, so being aware of what's out there can help you make informed decisions. If you want to learn more about any of the specific research referenced in Dr. Jacobson's lecture, check out the fascinating studies below. 1. Coxon Coldex Gradual, Chaudhary and Remesten. Questions answered by Michael Jacobson, PhD. Question, 
What steps can we take to reduce the use of salt in the food industry? Answer, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration or FDA and U.S. Department of Agriculture or USDA do little to tackle this problem. That said, city and state health officials could be pressuring the food industry to lower sodium levels and the U.S. Congress could be doing more. Cities and states could also enforce stricter regulation for restaurants, requiring them to display whining notices on foods with the highest level of salt, or even better, the actual sodium levels. Question, what is the maximum amount of sodium we should be eating in a day? A. Our answer, the less the better. The Institute of Medicine recommends under 2,300 mg a day for healthy, young, white adults. Most other people should go down to 1,500 mg per day. Many often ask me, what level of salt intake is unsafe? And my answer is always the same. There is no cutoff. The more one eats, the greater the risk of hypertension. Question, what are some main problems caused by a diet high in sodium? Answer, high blood pressure, heart attack, and strokes are main health concerns. That said, kidney stones, dehydration, electrolyte imbalances, and gastric ulcers are also linked to high salt intakes. Question, how much sodium does it usually take to begin having these symptoms? Answer, the more one consumes, the greater the ch chances of high blood pressure. Regarding other conditions, symptoms are not time-bound. My advice is that prevention is better than cure. Question, why does America allow artificial food dyes when Europe and other regions do not? Answer, because European governments and consumers are a lot, lot less tolerant of accepting risk from unnecessary food ingredients. What can we do to change this? We either need a new government or a lot more public pressure in the form of media publicity and congressional hearings. Individuals should write letters to their congressional representatives and demand a more transparent food supply. Question. Why are illness and food poisoning from vegetables so much more prevalent today? How can we reduce the risk of contamination? Answer, it's not clear if there are more problems today or our technique at detecting contamination has improved. In order to reduce the risk, the DFA needs to reinforce or enforce stricter regulations that requires farmers and packing houses to take extra preventive measures. In addition, the FDA needs to verify that those measures are implement, implemented by having an inspection system in place. Question, 
what is an effective way to coach the public about the benefit of eating less industrial chemical foods without sounding confrontational or like an activist? Answer, it's so hard to get friends and clients to change their diets. If appeals to their health don't work, maybe bringing in altruistic concerns, animal welfare, and the environment might. Questions? What do you think about forfeited foods? Are the, are the added vitamins and minerals benefit or beneficial? Answer, from the outset, they're probably beneficial since it ensures people who eat poor diets are at least getting some added vitamins and minerals. That said, it would be a lot smarter to get nutrients from natural foods. In part because natural foods contain dietary fiber, protein, and variety of nutrients and forfeited foods don't. Could they be dangerous if we eat too many forfeited foods in a day? Maybe in a few cases, but in general, that's not a concern. Question, how accurate do you feel the nutrition labels are on the majority of packaged foods? Answer, the FDA, Consumers Union, and Center of Science in the Public Interest do spot check inspections and the labels are generally accurate. The challenge now is to continue to get chain restaurants to provide calorie and other nutrition information and menu on menus and menu boards. Question, do you think we will run out of fresh food with most U.S. crops producing soy and corn for predominantly industrial use? Answer, I don't think this could be a huge concern. If there's a market for fruits, vegetables, and grains, then companies will fill the needs. Still, the diversion of so much corn to produce ethanol is raising food prices. Question, what can we do to protect our food supply from shortages? Answer, the United States will probably not be affected by food shortages. Compared with city dwellers in developing nations, it's their population who will face the biggest food shortages challenges. I want to talk about uh, corporations and pharmaceutical corporations and the exposure uh, to the general public of prescription powerful prescription medications. Integrated nutrition, I really strive to be like Switzerland, being neutral about everything. So, regarding medications, there are a lot of people who are alive today because of medication. You know, my own mother would probably not be alive today if she wasn't taking heart medication. And for you too, right? How many of you have parents who wouldn't be alive if they didn't take? So I'm like the last person who's going to diss medication. In the old days when I was younger, I'd be like, oh, pharmaceutical drugs are bad. Over time I matured. And there's a time and a place and a season for everything. 
the problem is when people uh, they advertise powerful medications like they're advertising Cracker Jacks or something on television. Oh, I'll have some of that and some of that and some of that. And there is uh, very little correlation between diet and lifestyle and disease. And uh, it's a lot like, you know, kids in a candy store because most people have insurance, so it doesn't really cost them any money. Say, hey doc, let me try the purple pill or let me try this. And uh, it was a great move from a business point of view. Sales of prescription drugs uh, skyrocketed after they uh, found a way to make it legal to advertise uh, publicly like that. You have to know the times that you're living in. And these are rough and tumble times. And to shut our eyes and pretend that doesn't exist and just tell people to eat more vegetables when there is a tidal wave of millions and billions of dollars spent influencing them in another direction, it, w it wouldn't make sense to not talk about this. Drug companies begin uh, influencing doctors' thoughts, feelings, and decision-making process at a very early stage. As soon as uh, young people get into school, the drug companies are all over them, taking them out to lunch, buying them drinks, going to parties, all the way through uh, medical practice where uh, they are wined and dined, and the people who... Actually, one of the, the doctor told me that, uh, why do you got like free front row tickets to some rock concert? Because he, he won the contest of prescribing the most number of prescriptions for that. And I, I think the public, you know, you know when you, like the public has no idea what really goes on in the kitchen of restaurants? I think the public has no idea what goes on in the business of healthcare. Uh, there is a program called No Free Lunch, which young people started to uh, encourage their colleagues in university to refuse to take things from drug companies while they're in school. It's a great organization, it's called No Free Lunch, and uh, it's a new generation, uh, a new perspective about how to deal with this uh, exchange. Another problem with drug companies is that you can buy the exact same drug in another country for a fraction of the price. And a lot of Americans, especially those like in my area, they'll do the five-hour drive up to Canada to buy the same drug for a fraction of the price. And in a country that is talks so much about free trade, uh, the the barriers for free trade that has been set up by the drug company to disallow the reimportation of drugs is absurd. Like what happens is the drug gets made in the United States, they ship or wherever it comes into the United States, gets shipped up to Canada, but then it's illegal to ship it back down because Americans need to be, quote, protected because no one knows what happens to those drugs while they're in Canada. And um, so that's, it's, it's a big thing. I don't think Americans really realize how much less the same drug costs in other countries. Um, 
And then the third thing which they addressed, which was the TV advertising. To illustrate this point more clearly, I want to ask you, um, how many people have taken antibiotics? Again, raise your hand, make some noise. Not a lot of excitement. Let's try this. How many people have taken drugs for a long time? I mean, antibiotics for a long time. Okay, we're going to do a little experiment here. Nisha, how long is a long time? Well, when I was a child, I got them. Yeah. When I was a child, I took them. Uh, I, I actually was on. 11 rounds of antibiotics by the time I was two for ear infections because I had a dairy intolerance but nobody knew it. I always know to pick the right person. Can <laughs> you stand up for a minute? You just stay right there. What is the, anyone know negative side effects from taking antibiotics? What, what, tell me one. It strips your immune system and then you... Um, need a lot of acidophilus to rebuild your digestive tract. Perfect. Very well said. So now here's Nisha, who is like one year old with an ear infection. And she already knows because she had a dairy intolerance. And someone gave you how many rounds of antibiotics? Eleven by the time I was two. I was a wreck. I was constipated for like 25 years. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, now, did you see what happened there? Did you see, like, she laughed, but she also did this thing? And I think you want to be very careful, because it is, to me, like, it's like, it's just not right. If, if you know and I know, then I don't know how a physician would know that it doesn't make sense to give a girl 11 rounds of antibiotics for an ear infection when someone with no accreditation can say, because I was dairy intolerant. You, you see that? And do you see how this happens all day, every day? And so how, how, does that, how has this affected you? Um, in terms of what? Health or? Well, constipation for a long, long, long time. And um, it was eventually that breaking point where I'd had tubes in my ears three times throughout my life. And my grandmother on my father's side was actually an Ayurvedic practitioner and was like, she just needs ear oil. She just needs ear oil. And she was horrified. But my parents were like, no, this is the new way of doing things. Okay, hold so, it right there. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of regulation about be careful about the unlicensed practitioners. Well, way more people get injured and die through the licensed practitioners than through the unlicensed. 75% of Americans have tried alternative medicine. You don't very often hear like someone died going to their nutritionist. <laughs> or going to their unlicensed massage therapist. But you hear like hundreds, of, every day in the news, you hear, you know, all 10,000 people died of this, and whoops, we made a mistake here, or this drug uh, testing thing was faked. I think there's way more problems with the licensed practitioners in America than the unlicensed practitioners. 
Okay, so, but all the legislation, and everyone's a good person. Sometimes after I do this class, people are like, ah, Joshua, I'm like railed against the doctors. And, uh-uh. It's, we're, we're all in a system that's a money-driven system where people want to monopolize certain sections uh, of practice. And it's, it's, we're just, that's the times that we're living in. And so when someone says, ear oil, then they're like, called a quack. And someone, you know, 11 rounds, like, that person doesn't go to jail. Right? But so many, like, people are, people here are afraid. They ask me all the time, am I going to get arrested working out of my home? <laughs> you know, is this going to happen? So many people are, uh, really strongly intimidated. Do you know that the Chiropractic Association for decades was intimidated by the Medical Association until they finally like uh, found papers that's, that showed that they were purposely trying to limit competition? Right? And until then, they were just considered quacks. And then from that day on, Doctors were no longer allowed to put down the chiropractic profession. Nisha. Hi. So that was not so good, huh? Not so good, no. So how did it happen that they started listening to your grandfather? Um, to my grandmother. Actually, grandmother. they never did. I went on my own journey when I was, you know, in my mid-20s to figure out what was going on here. Because once you've had that for so many years, I feel like there was the emotional side of it, was, which was not being able to let go of things. Because I physically wasn't able to let go. Emotionally, I had trouble letting go of things. So there was the emotional side, and then, you know, other health things started piling up. So I went on my own journey, and I went to a naturopathic doctor who was like, hmm, okay. So let's see. So you have this, 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 and you were constipated for two decades. And then before that, you had all these antibiotics. Hmm. When did you stop breastfeeding? And I said, probably around the time I got my first ear infection. She was like, oh, maybe let's not try pasteurized milk anymore. So that was it. But by then, my grandmother had passed away. So I'm sure she can see now that I have my mullen oil, and she's very happy. But, you know, at the time. That's great. Thanks for sharing Thank that you. with us. My name is Jeffrey Smith, and I'm the executive director of the Institute for Responsible Technology. And I wrote the books Seeds of Deception and Genetic Roulette, and I'm the director of the film Genetic Roulette, The Gamble of Our Lives. My focus is GMOs, and I want to share with you information to help you uh, train others, teach others, and advise others related to GMOs, and hopefully the advice would be avoid GMOs. Um, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine in 2009 evaluated the animal feeding studies on GMOs and said there's causal evidence of dangers. These lab animals are getting sick from gastrointestinal disorders, immune system problems, reproductive disorders, accelerated aging, organ damage, insulin or cholesterol dysfunction, and that all doctors should prescribe non-GMO diets to all patients. And I assume that meant nutritionists as well and health coaches. 
So we now have thousands of healthcare professionals around the country prescribing non-GMO diets to their patients and clients. And we have heard so much evidence from the practitioners as well as from the people who've removed GMOs about dramatic improvements. And the improvements, I don't think coincidentally, are along the same categories of diseases and disorders that we saw in afflicting the lab animals. So every time I give a lecture in California or New York or wherever there's a significant number of people that have actually removed GMOs from their diet, I ask them, what changes have you noticed? And they will tell me, typically, every single group, gastrointestinal, is the largest category. Always gastrointestinal is represented, and it's always the largest percentage. But we also have asthma and allergies, so immune system problems, headaches, fatigue, brain fog, skin conditions, weight problems. We've also heard diabetes. We've also heard liver and kidney problems. We've also heard, actually, the, the cancer, uh, depression, aggression, impulsive behavior, autistic symptoms, etc. Now, you'll know that when you say to someone, avoid GMOs, there's no labels to help you that says contains GMOs. So people typically have to do a strategy. They have to buy organic, or they have to reduce processed foods. We have a, an iPhone app, Shop No GMO, making it easy. We have a, a website, uh, non-gmoshoppingguide.com. So we have over 10,000 products verified as non-GMO by the Non-GMO Project. And there's more than 8,000 in the pipeline. But when it comes down to individual choices, it's not as easy to eat the same things you've been eating before and just substitute it as non-GMO alone. So as soon as you introduce organic foods and reduce processed foods, you introduce cofactors, confounding factors that might interfere with the simple explanation, why are you feeling better? Now, if it were just anecdotal evidence from humans getting rid of GMOs, we wouldn't have much of a uh, case. We have the animal feeding studies showing similar categories of diseases and disorders under controlled conditions. But we also have a few other reference points. When farmers or veterinarians take livestock off of genetically modified soy or corn and substitute the non-GM soy or corn, there are no cofactors. They're not eating organic. They're not reducing the amount of packaged processed foods. It's just that one change. So when the Danish pig farmer reported that when they switched to non-GM soy and his farmhand came up to him not knowing that there was a switch and insisted in two days that he must have switched the feed, he said, uh-oh, why? He said, because there's no more diarrhea. They had massive uncontrolled diarrhea for years that was fatal often. So the pig farmer described his diarrhea. In a doctor's office where I was in Chicago, her patients described it as irritable bowel, getting better from a non-GMO diet. Same symptoms. Another pig farmer in western Iowa, he saw a three-quarter reduction in the use of medicines, including antibiotics. People told us that they get colds and flus less. Pigs get colds and flus less, or whatever they get. 
We heard that there's a reduction or elimination of birth defects in the pigs, a higher litter size. That doesn't translate very well to humans. A higher conception rate. We see very similar things in the livestock that we see in the humans, oftentimes within two days in livestock, because that's the bulk of what they eat. GM versus non-GM is a huge difference for them, much bigger change than in the United States than in, in, in consumers here. Now, we also have heard from veterinarians that pets are getting better on non-GM pet food. I interviewed a veterinarian who, once she learned about GMOs, in part from the film Genetic Roulette, The Gamble of Our Lives, and she looked at the book Genetic Roulette, and she became completely convinced that GMOs were a problem and started to tell everyone. Everyone. You know those type of people. You're probably those type of people. You just, you have, you have to talk about uh, nutrition. And her case was GMO. And so she was able to convince many of her, of her clients to take their pets off of GMOs, and she saw a dramatic difference. And I said, okay, help me understand this. You may do acupuncture, she's a holistic vet. You may do acupuncture, you may do supplements, and you're changing the food at the same time, so how do you know it's GMO? She goes, well, sometimes the person will not change the diet until the last thing. So you have intractable diarrhea. And the last thing that happens is, okay, we tried everything else, non-GMO diet, diarrhea goes away. Or it's the first thing. Then I, she, so she invited all these pet owners, these horses, these dog owners and whatnot. I interviewed them, dramatic changes. Two of them actually owned a pet food store. I went to the pet food store, interviewed them there. They don't prescribe the supplements. They don't do acupuncture. They just tell people, get off of the GMOs, and they have all of these stories. I talked to Michael Fox, who was pet doctor, or uh, yeah, animal doctor. He was the, the guy that writes the syndicated column for 25 to 30 million readers. He said when GMOs were introduced into the human food supply, the pets eat the, out, the byproducts of the human food chain, and they started getting dramatic increases in diarrhea and gastrointestinal disorders and itching and allergies. And <clears throat> he started getting letters from people all over. He said, get rid of the GMOs. He said he has a file drawer full of testimonies from pet owners that say their pets got better when they took out the genetically modified soy and corn. So we have the lab, lab animals. We have the humans. We have the pets. We have the livestock. And if you look at the charts of many of these same diseases, inflammatory bowel, irritable bowel, chronic constipation, peritonitis, certain types of cancers, the cancers were glyphosate or the active ingredient in Roundup, concentrates, I'll explain that in a minute. You have diabetes, high blood pressure, autism, deaths from senile dementia, deaths from Parkinson's, a number of these things, they track very, very tightly with the, in an increase when GMOs were introduced and as GMOs increased and the use of Roundup, the herbicide associated with most GMOs increased. And you can see them on the chart. Now, those things by themselves are very compelling. It's like an epidemiologist looks for these type of relationships. In fact, I talked to one doctor. She prescribed non-GMO diets at the time. This was in 2009 to 5,000 patients. And she could tell me how many days typically it takes to show a change. Three to, five, three to seven for allergies and asthma, almost immediately for mental conditions, a month for gastrointestinal. Sometimes it gets better over two years. She was describing with such predictability because she, she experiments on us, on humans. So she has more clinical experience than any of the doctors or the scientists who are doing the research on GMOs. If we just limit it to that, though, 
we're, we're going to be facing a lot of skepticism because it, is, it needs this second level. So let's look more deeply at the animal feeding studies and also the nature of the toxins found in GMOs to see how they may explain why people are getting these type of diseases and disorders. So, for those of you who don't know what a GMO is, it's probably time to define it. Genetically modified organism. It's a way of producing organisms that are not part of the natural selection. You take genes from one species. So let's say you wanted to turn corn into a natural pesticide or an unnatural pesticide. You take a Bt uh, bacteria, Bacillus thuringiensis. It produces a natural toxin, Bt toxin. So you take the gene out that produces this toxin. You put it in a gun. Actually, you make millions of copies of the, t of the gene, put it into a gun, shoot the gun into a plate of millions of corn cells, clone those cells into a plant, and now every single cell of that plant has a gene-sized spray bottle producing Bt toxin. Now, that's one of the traits, Bt toxin. It's in corn and cotton. The more popular trait is called herbicide tolerance. The most popular herbicide tolerant crop is Roundup Ready. That means they take a gene from bacteria, insert it into soybeans, corn, cotton, canola, sugar beets, alfalfa, and now you can spray those crops with Roundup and not kill the crops. Roundup herbicide, active ingredient glyphosate. Sprayed on Roundup Ready crops, it's absorbed into the crops, does not kill the crops, but is stored in the food portion that we eat. Not entirely, but a significant amount. So if we look at those two toxins, we will find that they may predispose humans and animals to these same diseases and disorders. If we put that aside just for a moment and look at the process itself of insertion plus cloning, unfortunately that too can lead to these type of disorders. Because the process of insertion plus cloning creates massive damage, collateral damage to the DNA. Up to 2 to 4% of the DNA can be changed, mutated. And there can be new levels of allergens or, high, or, or new allergens altogether. Same with toxins, same with carcinogens, same with, with anti-nutrients. So in Monsanto's corn that happens to produce the Bt toxin, it also, the process of genetic engineering, switched on a gene that's normally silent in corn that produces gamazine, which is a known allergen. So some of your clients may be reacting to eating corn that's not labeled to contain a new allergen. It just happens to because some scientists, after the corn was introduced to the market, decided to do some research. It was published and it was ignored. Soybeans, genetically engineered, trypsin inhibitor, which helps block the action of trypsin, which is an important protein digester, which is very, very important for, for health. Trypsin inhibitors as much as seven times higher in the cooked genetically engineered soy compared to cooked non-GM soy. So a whole cascade of problems can occur digestively in a product that was in an aspect of genetic engineering that was hidden from view. Monsanto found it in their studies and hid that information from the public, never published it. It came out afterwards when someone found the data in the archives of the journal. So that's the collateral damage. In fact, a study in England, in, in, uh, in Scotland, found that looking at the process of genetic engineering itself, not the particular gene 
and the protein that was created that was inserted, just the process, was almost certainly responsible for potentially precancerous cell growth in the digestive tract, smaller brains, livers, and testicles, partial atrophy of the liver, damaged immune system in 10 days. This was in rats. So, even if the genetically engineered crop is a golden rice that's supposed to prevent blindness because it has vitamin A in it, and there's tremendous problems with that, even if they did actually have something beneficial that they put into a crop, the process may create changes that can kill the person at the same time. Now, unfortunately, the regulatory agencies do not evaluate all those changes. They ignore most of them. Let's take a look at the two toxins that are in the crops that we know about, Bt toxin and Roundup. Now, for Bt toxin, it is used already in organic agriculture as a natural spray. It kills certain insects by poking holes in their stomach and killing them. It's not supposed to do that to humans. It's not supposed to have any impact on humans or mammals. It turns out it does. According to the Science Advisory Panel of the Environmental Protection Agency, the farm worker and mice studies done with natural Bt toxin show impact immune system responses, organ damage, and they recommend precaution. They were ignored. The GM crop that produces Bt toxin produces a more toxic version than the natural spray at concentrations three to 5,000 times more than the natural spray. The natural spray washes off and biodegrades, so it's not generally in the food we eat. The GM crop is encapsulated, so it is in the food that we eat. And it has properties of a known allergen. The animal feeding studies show with Bt corn show significant immune responses. And we found with human cells, this was a study done in, in the Journal of Applied Toxicology, it poked holes in human cells. The Bt toxin exposed to human cells in the laboratory poked holes in human cells just like in insects the same type of micropores that's used to kill insects. Now we have then this toxin, Bt toxin, that provokes immune responses in humans and mammals in corn. So just that aspect might explain some of the immune problems we talked about, asthma, allergies, autoimmune, etc. Then you have the hole poking nature. The hole poking nature might relate to the inflammatory bowel, the irritable bowel, the problems along the digestive tract. The Bt toxin also caused shortening and fragmentation of the microvilli along the, along the intestinal walls. So that alone can talk about the gastrointestinal disorder. But if you're poking holes in the gut, then that can lead to leaky gut or permeable gut, which is, then can allow undigested food proteins into the blood, which can create inflamm inflammatory uh, immune system responses, possible molecular mimicry, which can then lead to autoimmune disease, and also permeable gut is linked to certain cancers, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism, and other diseases. So just Bt toxin alone is a candidate for a lot of problems. But it has stiff competition from Roundup, which is soaked into the GM crops. Roundup's active ingredient glyphosate was originally patented as a broad-spectrum chelator in 1964, 10 years before Monsanto patented it as a herbicide. 
By chelator, we mean that it binds with manganese, magnesium, uh, all, all of the basic minerals, the cations. That, what it does is it makes them unavailable to the plant. Huge number of minerals tied up. And the way that it acts as an herbicide, it's not toxic directly enough to the plant to kill it. If you pour glyphosate on a plant in sterile soil, it'll stunt the plant because it will not have access to the minerals and then eventually get the minerals and it'll grow again. In field soil, it'll kill the plant. So how does that work? By depriving the plant of the nutrients, it deprives the plant of key keys in the lock that allow certain metabolic pathways to take place. And those metabolic pathways, among other things, protect the plant from diseases. So glyphosate not only makes the plant weak and sick, it also promotes the soil-borne pathogens that kill the plant. It's a perfect storm of disease and death. So the genetically modified Roundup Ready crops don't do anything to change the glyphosate. They're still weak and sick. So if we eat the Roundup Ready crops, they may be nutrient deficient. The livestock in the U.S., their primary food is Roundup Ready crops. So they can become weak and sick by eating the weak and sick plants, by eating the residues of Roundup so it binds with nutrients inside them. We eat the weak and sick plants, the animals. We can end up taking, we certainly do take the residues of Roundup inside us. It can bind with, with, with nutrients and help us become weak and sick. Now that alone is a problem because mineral deficiencies are linked to many diseases. And that could fill a lot of the diseases we're trying to explain. But Roundup also is an antibiotic, a very powerful antibiotic. And when you take it, it kills gut bacteria. Now gut bacteria is linked to digestion and immunity. But it's selective. It kills the good stuff, not the bad stuff. So the E. coli, the salmonella, the botulism, that's all resistant to Roundup but not the bifidus that, that suppresses inflammation, not the lactobacillus, the stuff that we need, the stuff that we buy from health food stores to replace. So if there's an overgrowth of negative gut bacteria, gut dysbiosis, that can produce a lot of problems. A certain um, caustic gas or acid, it can also create zonulin. Zonulin can cause the gaps in the cells to open up and then along the cell walls so they can have leaky gut that way. When glyphosate was uh, fed to... Uh, Carnivorous fish, it damaged the microvilli, it suppressed digestive enzymes. So just the Roundup, these properties can mess up digestion and immunity. Roundup also is an endocrine disruptor. So it might relate to the reproductive disorders we've seen in the, in the lab animals on the round, fed Roundup ready crops, show damage to the testicles, uterus, ovaries, uh, tenfold increase in infant mortality, birth defects, smaller babies, fewer babies, a lot of very serious reproductive disorders in lab animals and in livestock. We see that very clearly from anecdotal evidence as well. Now, Roundup also shuts down the shikimate pathway, which is found in bacteria and plants, but not in humans. And so Monsanto said, no need to worry about the shikimate pathway because we don't have it but our gut bacteria has it. And our gut bacteria uses it to produce the aromatic amino acids like L-tryptophan. So when you don't have L-tryptophan produced in such high quantity, it can't do its thing, which is serotonin. It's a precursor to serotonin and melatonin. So now 
all the problems with serotonin are now like in strong focus because you can end up with the mood disorders, the appetite disorders, the stress, and with the melatonin you got the sleep disorders. So now you can see how Roundup can relate to all of those other problems from immunity. You know, it's got the got the um, the leaky gut. So it's got a whole list of things, and on top of that, it also disrupts the the um, P450 cytochrome pathway, and that's linked, the enzymes are linked there to detox the body. So we are just pummeled with toxins throughout our lives. That's well documented. And a lot of them get ushered out of the body. But without the proper enzymes blocked by glyphosate, they become, those toxins become much more dangerous. Another perfect storm. So you see how these things might be creating these problems. There's a logical link. In fact, if you look at just the biochemical characteristics of glyphosate, which was looked at by Anthony Sampson and Stephanie Sennett in the journal Entropy in 2013, they said glyphosate is linked to heart disease, cancer, obesity, diabetes, autism, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, anorexia, aggression, and depression. Just looking at the biochemical structure and impact of that molecule. Now glyphosate is poured liberally on Roundup Ready crops. Unfortunately, it's also now used as a ripening agent for grains and pulses and fruit and vegetables, approved for 160 varieties. It's used in sugarcane. It's used all over. So we used to say avoid GMOs, and the four reasons, the four ways to do it are buy organic, buy products that say non-GMO, buy products listed in our shopping guide, or avoid the at-risk ingredients. Now we say the best way is to buy organic for sure, because you will want to avoid the glyphosate as well. So you may ask the question if you're not fully knowledgeable about the nature of the FDA, you may ask the question, how can this stuff be approved? How can the FDA let stuff like this on the market? The person in charge of policy at the FDA at the time that the GMO policy was created was Michael Taylor, Monsanto's former attorney. The policy under his jurisdiction claimed that the agency wasn't aware of any information showing that GMOs were significantly different. On the basis of that sentence, the entire U.S. policy on GMOs was created. The FDA says Monsanto could determine if its foods are safe. They told us PCBs, Agent Orange, and DDT were safe. Got that wrong, but we're sure they'll get it right with GMOs because we don't even require that they do any studies whatsoever. They don't have to tell the FDA that they want to put a GMO on the market. They don't have to tell consumers because there's no labeling. Documents made public from a lawsuit seven years after the policy was enacted showed that the agency was based, their policy was based on a lie. The sentence was a fiction. The overwhelming consensus among the scientists working at the FDA was exactly the opposite, that GMOs, in fact, were different and dangerous. And they urgently required long-term safety studies, including human studies. That was not paid attention to. The research that's done by the industry, we have analyzed, we've caught them red-handed, rigging their research of what, you know, it's tobacco science. It's junk science passed off as science. And this has been 
shown in other peer-reviewed studies that analyze biotechnology studies. It's junk. Not all of it, but the safety study. And there's very few of them. When independent scientists, and there's only very few of those, when they do research and discover problems, they're often fired, stripped of responsibilities, threatened, gagged, denied tenure, denied funding, always attacked. So the situation is dangerous. When you think of the products of this immature science being fed to the entire population, being released into the environment where the genes cannot be recalled, so they'll outlast the effects of global warming and nuclear waste. In other words, genetic pollution is permanent, at least with current technology. So you would think that they would extinguish all doubts before putting these on the market. The exact opposite happened. They ignored the doubts from their own scientists. They ignored the doubts from scientists around the world and have been actively suppressing criticism as well as research findings that implicate disease. So what do we do about it? Fortunately, people will make a choice to buy or not buy GMOs. And that turns out to be highly leveraged. When the scientist in Europe who discovered that the process of genetic engineering caused the potentially precancerous cell growth and all that thing, he was actually working on a grant from the UK government to figure out how to test for the safety of GMOs. And he went public with his concerns when he discovered that the process was a problem. He was a hero for two days at his prestigious institute. And then a couple of phone calls from the UK Prime Minister's office to the director ended up causing this guy to be fired the next day. They never implemented his safety testing protocols. They attacked him. They gagged him. Seven months later, the UK Parliament lifted his gag order. He was able to speak. He was finally able to speak about what he knew, that the dangers of GMOs were serious, that the industry was not doing research that would identify those dangers, and that we were being experimented on as guinea pigs. Over 700 articles were written in the UK press alone within a month. Within 10 weeks, the tipping point of consumer rejection was achieved. And this was heralded by Unilever, who said no more GMOs in Europe. Then Nestle's, then McDonald's, Burger King, Walmart, everyone who does business in Europe with, with food said no more GM ingredients in our food. So that's how GMOs were taken out of Europe, not the European Union. There's still animal feed there that's genetically engineered, but almost no one uses soy lecithin from GM soy, you know, high fructose corn syrup from corn, etc. Consumers are at the top of the food chain. Now, if you think how many consumers in America would need to avoid GMOs in order to convince General, General Foods, General Mills, to avoid GMOs? Well, it's not a vote. They don't need to lose 50% of market share in order to say, well, I think we need to make a change. If they see any drop in market share that they can relate to growing anti-GMO sentiment happening in the United States, it's like an industry cell signal. We saw that with bovine growth hormone, a genetically engineered drug injected into cows to increase milk supply. It increases IGF-1 in the milk, which is linked to cancer. We educated parents about that. Walmart kicked it out. So did Starbucks, Yoplait, Dan, and most American dairies. Tipping point. So we are engineering. At our Institute for Responsible Technology, we are engineering a tipping point of consumer rejection. And we are very excited at how successful our plans and our coalition partners' plans have been. 
we have achieved a tipping point in the natural food industry where it's clear not being, in this case, not only do you have to be non-GMO, but non-GMO project verified, otherwise you may lose money. The, in Whole Foods, they said when a product becomes non-GMO project verified, it increases sales by 15 to 30%. Thousands of products are being entered in the non-GMO project for verification. Now we're at a time where we're going to see the tipping point in the conventional industry. And it's already started. In 2013, Target declared that sometime in 2014, its home brand would be non-GMO. Ben & Jerry's by 2014. Chipotle, uh, the, the Mexican food chain, non-GMO. Cheerios is now non-GMO in its, in its original brand, in its original flavor. So we are seeing this. In fact, the products that are labeled non-GMO, they were the fastest growing labeled category in 2012 in the United States. Hartman Group said that in 2007, 16% or so of Americans said they were avoiding GMOs. Three years later, 25%. Three years later, 39%. So 39% as of 2013 say they're avoiding GMOs. So this is an interesting opportunity. Practitioners who give advice for diet are the most influential of the demographic groups that we approach. We are looking, the Institute is looking to influence the buying behavior of moms, of sick people, the education advice of healthcare professionals, and of pet owners and horse owners. And here's where healthcare professionals can be particularly powerful at this point in time. So we invite the practitioners listening to this to go to responsibletechnology.org, sign up for our newsletter, but also we are going to be creating a coalition or a group of healthcare professionals concerned about GMO health risks so that we can share information between the professionals, have a voice in the media, have a voice in the nutrition profession and the medical profession, participate in sharing information about what we know in terms of what people are experiencing and what practitioners are experiencing when they take GMOs out of the diet, and we can advance this information. We're also going to be providing information on GMOs and specific diseases. So at glutenandgmos.com, we have a large paper on the relationship between gluten sensitivity and GMO consumption, and we'll do that with many, many different diseases. So we'll also be providing special, special courses for training. We have a speaker training course. Many, many IIN students and graduates have taken the course. In fact, we have about 20 people working at the Institute, and many of them are IIN graduates. So I know that there's an affiliation there. So I'm very happy to have shared this information. We haven't had a chance with this brief amount of time to drill down into the specific peer-reviewed published studies or showing exactly how the industry rigs their research. It's one of my favorite topics to discover and show. But I'll say this. All that information is there. And we have a lot of it available at responsibletechnology.org, the shopping guide at non-gmoshoppingguide.com, the most effective tool we have had for converting people's diet is the movie, Genetic Roulette, The Gamble of Our Lives. I know some doctors that give IV treatments and put the, the film on, talk about a captive audience. <laughs> and that's available at geneticroulettemovie.com. And that is the easiest thing to do is to loan the video, loan the film to your, to your clients and say, bring it back at our next appointment and then we'll talk. And usually by then, they've made they change what they're eating and throwing things out at home. So we're available for support for practitioners.
would like to work together with IA more closely. Thank you very much.
Hi, this is Thursday with the Education Department. So, we talked about your newfound love for marketing and now you're jazzed up about talking to people and giving them an experience of working with you. In this class, we're going to talk about how to make marketing efforts really effective at getting people to talk with you and why interaction with you is so important to your credibility as a business owner. We'll also talk about how much to determine which marketing tools work best for you. There's a ton of options out there for you on how to market your business. And the really cool part is, your business is an expression of you. So you get to make it all about your unique personality. Your business also gets to change with you as you evolve as a person. It's just as alive as you are. So, even as your business evolves over the years, Stick to one constant, a call to action. Every marketing message should train your audience to interact with you somehow. You want people around you to know that talking with you is your ultimate goal. And don't assume that people know this because old-fashioned conversations aren't as common as they used to be. Because social media now has a place that it has in our cultures worldwide, it has created a habit of passive observation. You know how you just scroll down the page and scan over pictures and words and videos? You think you're keeping up with friends and, and, and their lives without connecting with them directly. And it gives the illusion that we are connected. When social media really started taking off, the marketing world took the approach that content creation was king. Develop really killer content and the business will flock to you. This means you're left to churn out blog posts and newsletters and Twitter posts and hope that something resonates with someone enough to come to your website and make an appointment with you. Does that seem efficient? Now that everyone is doing it, getting it, someone's attention needs something uh, a tad different. So connect. Be a real person that can listen and respond. When you connect with people, truly connect. You will stand out in the world of disconnection. As you may have picked up by now, Joshua very much believes in the power of connection and conversation with people. That it is healing without using any fancy techniques. And that this is our number one goal with all this marketing stuff. We just want people to experience a connection with you. As you begin to build your business, train yourself to create what's called a CTA call to action with every message you create. The CTA is not a new marketing concept, but when used authentically, especially in the realm of coaching, which is all about connection and communication, a call to action is exactly the invitation someone needs to take that first step towards doing something really good for themselves, working with you. We'll go into more depth later on marketing tools to use, but for now, we want you to focus on making them efficient. It really doesn't matter what the marketing tool is. A call to action is a powerful element that we recommend adding as much as possible. It could be as simple as, have a conversation with me, click here to set it up. Or in addition to giving them your favorite vegan brownie recipe in a blog post, instruct them to give you feedback on social media or by email. Just an easy, tell me how this works for you. Craft your social media posts to encourage interactions too. Encourage followers to give their opinion on recent news links or an experience you want them to try, 
or for feedback on what's useful for them to learn about from you. Not only does this just create the habit of making your messages actionable, but it allows people to see you as approachable and active. It gives the impression that this little business of yours isn't just a hobby that you pop in and out of. It is a credible business that is active, alive, and, and that there is a real person there. Have you ever found a business or a person and decided to see what they're about, uh, maybe a practitioner, and tried to keep up with them online? But when you find their social media page or website, it's, it's quiet, like no activity in months. And maybe you wonder if they're still in business. How many of you actually called to see if they were still in business? And how many of you decided to move on and find someone else? For now, your call to action should be to talk with you. But one day you may have a newsletter list and you'll want to direct people to sign up for that. There are plenty of actions you'll eventually want people to take with you. So conditioning yourself to always include some direction for your readers can start now. As you progress in building a business, You'll notice that the same bio-individuality that applies to nutrition also applies to this process. I urge you to be curious about each new tool you learn about and to give them all a good faith effort. You will be surprised at what feels comfortable for you, where you'll find talents you didn't even know existed, and what your audience responds to the most. This is a, a lifelong process, and the landscape for building a business evolves constantly. Now, with this in mind, I recommend tracking your marketing efforts on paper. Use an old-fashioned pencil and notebook or keep a, a working document on your computer. Whatever works easiest for you. But do anything but rely on your memory. Tracking is very simple and highly effective at showing you which marketing tools work best for you. So, as you include a new marketing tool, you'll note the date as you started using it. As you see results, record those results. When you make an edit, because this will always be a work in progress, record that too, along with the results of the edit. Results are anything from the number of newsletter subscribers from a blog post to the number of health histories you get from a workshop. Anything that shows people you are interacting with you or opening the door to considering working with you. Track it. Now, a general rule of thumb in marketing is to give something 90 days to determine its efficacy. When we start introducing marketing tools that we recommend, we want you to start keeping track of it immediately, which is why we're bringing it up now. We also want to encourage you to actually try everything for a full 90 days rather than assuming it's not going to work. Most likely, you have already been surprised at something from experimenting with your food. So carry that curious approach to this too. Tracking your results serves you in two ways. Number one, it shows you what is working so that you can get better at that. And number two, it creates a space to evaluate why something did not work for you. This is really, really helpful for planning and timelines. And, and I'll use a, a, a workshop as an example. As you plan your first workshop, keep records of what you did first, how long each step took, and what you felt stressed you towards the event day, what you wished you had more time for. There's always that moment when you feel like, oh, next time I'll do this differently. Write it down. Because the next time you pursue another workshop, 
you'll know what worked really well so that you can replicate it and what should be done differently. Again, don't rely on your memory because it plays tricks on us. I mean, why spend extra energy when you don't have to? Just write it down. You don't need fancy worksheets or software to do this. My tracking sheets look like diary entries. I note the date and then I just write out the changes I made and why. All I say is February 5th uploaded newsletter sign up box to homepage. I noted something like this because I want to track how quickly my newsletter list grows and with each change. So should I decide to change the language around the invitation to my newsletter list, I will note that on my tracking sheet on the day that I make the change. As Joshua says, life is a long time. And as you increase your mindset around health coaching as a career, your perspective will evolve to see marketing for its long-term results. Just because something doesn't work for you now doesn't mean that as you grow as a business owner that it won't work for you later on down the road. Keeping notes of everything you do will serve you greatly once you come back around to it. Now that you know how to create purpose behind your marketing messages, exercise your awareness of call to action messages with the worksheet paired with this class to evaluate businesses you already follow and how you interact with them. Call to Action Worksheet Part of creating buzz around your business and attracting new clients is including intriguing calls to action in your messaging. This encourage your audience member to interact with your brand, leading them to develop a relationship with your business and helping build trust before they take the next step and sign up. Still, not all calls to action encourage the same amount of interaction. Those that encourage followers to share personal information without offering context or incentives aren't likely to be successful. To help determine what makes call to action effective, this worksheet will help you pinpoint what encourages you to interact with people and businesses on social media. Once you can determine why you feel compelled to interact, you can leverage that information to develop calls to action that people will want to be part of it. Facebook List five of your favorite people or brands on Facebook with whom you regularly interact. What is about their content that catches your eye? Twitter List five of your favorite people or brands on Twitter with whom you regularly interact. What, it is, what is it about their content that leads you to follow them? Emails. List three people or brands who email you regularly. Open and take you the requested action. What is it about these people or brands that lead you you want to or want more? For example, click to read more on the blog, watch videos, website. List three websites you recently visited that prompt you to take action. What action were you asked to take? What made you follow this particular action? On site, 
Have you visited spa, restaurant, or practitioner office and been invited to like them on Facebook or post a picture on Instagram? Whatever the action, did you do it? Why or why not? What do, what do you respond to? Do you comment, share, or click when asked? If so, what prompts you to take the requested action? Curiosity. The promise of a free gift? Because you like the product and message. Based on your answers on the previous pages, what elements of these people or brands will you incorporate into your marketing messages or messages to inspire engagement through effective calls to action? How to engage your audience? Creating fresh content that your audience is compelled to engage with queries a bit of creativity, but the following tips will give you ideas for inspiring posts. Offer your followers some bites of information and insight that can improve their lives, and you'll organically build an active and loyal online community. Tips to help engage your audience? Share your ideas and mission by posting meaningful quotes. Natural forces within us are the true healers of disease by hypocrites. Hearty laughter is a good way to jog internally without having to go out. Doris by Norman Cousins. Create surveys to learn about and engage your market. Use online service generators such as SurveyMonkey and free online servers. Or surveys. Generate original video clips with useful tidbits. Use services like YouTube and Vimeo to host and share your videos. Invite people into your conversations by asking for input. Using Change My Life, I never realized how sluggish the typical American diet made me feel until I started feeding my body what it needed to function as at its optimal level what one health tool or tip can change your life the most so i've been posting recently about the power of primary food in our lives do you have an example of a time when you healed by addressing a primary primary food issue share here ask your follower to invite others into the conversation Look at this exciting new research about children and nutrition post link here. Share if you think it's valuable information. Do you know someone who would love to learn about the natural healing power of raw foods? Invite them to like my page. Tips to help network and build a following. Join relevant online communities and connect with other professionals in your field. Reply to comments and questions from followers to elicit further conversation. Adhere to the content is king rule. Connect and give followers great content 90% of the time and promote your sessions, workout, and our products 10% of the time. Ensure the promotion that link to your website have an immediate call to action and link to a specific page related to your post.
Coach Secrets Reveal Calls to Action Question and Answer with Amber Robertson from Nashville TN Question For more successful calls to action, what did you do that worked so well? Answer Website At the end of each blog post, I either ask the reader to try the featured recipe or ask them questions about the topic I blog about and invite them to share their comments. Social media. Posting a photo and asking a question always work very well. For example, I recently posted a photo on Facebook of beautiful homemade fruits infused waters and then asked the question, how do you stay hydrated in the summer? How do you make sure you're getting enough water? CTAs like this always generate lots of comments. Newsletters. My most successful CTAs are in my monthly newsletter. At the end of each newsletter, I offer CTA that varies from the month to month. Sometimes, I invite the reader to try the featured recipe and report back on Facebook. Sometimes, I invite them to reply to the email with an any question they have. When I have room for new clients, I invite the reader to schedule a healthy or health history consultation. Question, how do you create your CTAs? Answer, when I have room for new clients, my CTA is always about scheduling a health history. At other times, my primary goal is engagement, comments, conversion, or conversation, email exchanges. Just some kind of engagement to keep me re relevant in my audience mind. I found that when you stop engaging with your audience, they will forget about you. So my thought process behind my CTA is always around keeping my audience engaged and interacting with me. I think what most students need to understand when they starting a business is how important it is to build a relationship with your audience. When you're a health coach, being a successful business owner depends on the quality of relationship you have with your audience. Relationships are built on trust and communication. So, my CTAs are designed to ignite the communication even in a small way like encouraging comments and sharing on Facebook. Question, do you have examples of CTAs that have not worked? Answer, honestly, there are times when they all work and there are times when they all don't. I treat CTAs like an experiment every time. I'm looking for feedback each time I send out any communication, looking for what topics people want to learn more about. Question, do you have methods of tracking the success of your marketing efforts? Answer, yes. My newsletter makes it very easy to track what people are reading. I use MailChimp to create my newsletter and their analytics features allow me to see the percentage of newsletter views and the specific people viewing them as well as any link they click. I use Google Analytics to track which pages and articles on my website get the most views. All this information tells me what content my audience 
is interested in the content they're not interested in, allowing me to crop more content that's relevant to them. It all sounds too complicated when you're just starting out. Don't worry. The simplest way to track your marketing effort is to ask, how did you find me? Whatever someone you contacts you. Analytics to track with pages and articles on my website get the most views. All these informations tell me what content my audience is interested in and the content they're not interested in, allowing me to crop more content that's relevant for them. If this all sounds too complicated when you're just starting out, don't worry. The simplest way to track your marketing effort is to ask, how did you find me? Whenever someone new contacts you. Question and answer with Jean Savage from Hudson Valley, New York. Question, how do you create your CTAs? Answer, I always try to get leads to my website, even if I set up a Facebook event. I have all my content on my website, so I consistently say, okay, here is a new program coming up. Go to my website. I'm trying to train them to think, oh, maybe Jane has a new program coming up. I should check her website. Over time, when they think of Jane's September program, they will think, let me check her website. The point of my newsletter is to let them know what programs I have coming up, but I do not want them to feel like they are always getting something. I know if I get a newsletter, I want it to be very specific and action-oriented. There is this book called Job, 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 Right Hook. You're giving them things, informations, recipes, just great brief stuff, so they always feel like they're getting something. Then you hit them with the right hook and say, Okay, great, here is my program. Sign up today. I try to think about capturing emotions. They are going to make decisions based on their emotions. So, if I have a picture or a praise, again, I'm trying to get them back to my website with the newsletter. I try to give them an incentive to go to the website, grabbing them emotionally to register in the next two weeks. So, or get a free bonus or something. Question, do you ever feel hesitation about giving away too much information? Answer, there is nothing brand new that I'm going to tell them that they haven't heard already. I'm framing it in a different way. When they buy my services, they are buying me as a coach. And a coach is someone who holds them accountable, motivates them, and encourages them. It's not about the stuff. It's not about the information that I give them. Question and answer with Alessandra Di Filippo from Philadelphia. Question, how do you use your CTAs in social media? Answer, over time, my business had become referral and social media based. I continue to build relationships through online connections. I share relatable information and challenge my followers to be present 
and think through their choices every day. And I regularly invite them to take advantage to offers I may have available. Question and answers with Tommy Honer from Kingsburg. Question, when you use social media, what is the action you ask people to take? Answer, most of the time I am reaching out on social media to have them go to my website. From there, it would lead them to their next step. Question, how do you gain the confidence to move forward and apply what you have learned? Answer, in that whole year or whole first year in school, I remember being led in the direction of taking action before you were fully clear what that step would mean. I made a commitment to myself that this schooling and my education with IAN was it. I was going to give it it absolutely everything I have put and put 100% trust in the process that IAN presents. I tried so hard not to allow the fear to stop me. I developed the this act first, think later approach. Monthly promotion tips. The idea listed on the following pages are meant to support you with your marketing and six-month group program topics throughout the calendar year. You can incorporate these topics into your newsletters, social media, and materials providing to your referral partners. Your program and promotions, such as groups, workshops, teleseminars, special programs, can be based on any of the following themes. Be sure to choose topics that resonate with you and you will be of interest to your target market. For example, in March, you promote a six-month group program around eating for energy. Your marketing should reflect this topic and include copy that encourages your contacts to take action. Monthly Topics Calendar January New Year's Resolution Get back on track with your health self-care in the winter february valentine's day healthy relationships sugar blues and reduced cravings food and mood in winter months march eating for energy reduce stress and have balance managing allergies weight management and self-image april spring cleaning and the junkier life Cleanse and reduce toxins, exercise, and movement. May, empowering women, positive self-image, healthy digestive, and whole grains. June, ruffles and superfoods, socializing and creating community, men's health. July, summer eating and keeping cool, travel and exploration, eating healthy on the go. August, the juncture kitchen, Relaxation and balance, use the seasons to stay balanced and happy. September, healthy snacking and eating on the run, connecting with spirituality fall detoxification. October, healthy families and healthy kids, deconstructing cravings, complex carbs and maintaining energy. November, survive the holidays, extreme self-care. Slow down and breathe, 
Vegetarian Awareness and Plant-Based Diets. December, Holiday Celebrations, Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa. Keep your immune system strong, gratitude, and prosperity. Monthly Sales Tips 1. It's important to take or give yourself adequate time for planning your marketing. For example, if your goal is to launch a spring cleansing group in April, you should begin in this planning 6 weeks in advantage and marketing at least 3 to 4 weeks in advance. This way, you have time to build interest and get enrollment as well as have your referral partners on board to promote with you. It is also allow sufficient time to plan the program itself. 2. When you use email to promote your programs or classes, remember that people need to hear from you more than once. It will take a minimum of 3 emails to promote the group or class. So you can build trust, increase enrollment, and provide special incentives to find clients. 3. Typical, the best month for lectures and finding clients from building speaking in January or, or January, February, March, April, October, and November. This is when people are most aware of goals, want to incorporate positive changes, and are open to doing it. 4. You could, you could include other special promotions in your email newsletter and marketing such as as gift certificate for assistance bring a friend coupons for your workshop and other events a bonus gift for signing up etc five always include a call to action in your promotions make it clear how your prospect can take action to accept your offer or invitation whether by email visiting a website link or phone Six, when you work with referral partners to promote your work, it's important to give them the exact email you could like them to use. This way, you can make sure it's focused on the benefits and action steps people need to take to participate. Seven, your prospect will be motivated by special incentives for your promotions. These could include registration deadlines, time-sensitive discounts such as reduced rate if registered by a certain date or limited number of spaces available for groups, workshop, etc. A. Keep in mind that summer months, July, August, and early September may be a little slower as people are traveling and less responsive. A helpful suggestion is to conduct your business and marketing planning in the summer and prepare for a strong fall and winter in relation to your goals. 9. The holiday season is not usually a good time to launch new incentives like groups or workshops. Launch program before the holidays begin. For example, start your fall promo in October rather than mid-November. Hi, it's nice to see you again. Welcome to your final student success check-in. Yes, here we are. You're almost done with this amazing journey. Your coaching circle call should be wrapping up soon, and you just have a few more modules left. How are you feeling about everything? 
You might have many thoughts and emotions at this point. That's normal. Finishing something brings a feeling of accomplishment, but also fear if there are still many unknowns. We believe in you, and we're here for you. So keep being there for yourself. Okay, are you ready for the highlights of what's coming up? Here they are. Test four. Your fourth and final test is coming up soon. By now, you probably know the drill. Test four covers the content in modules 31 through 40. As always, you can find a study guide on the documents page of the Learning Center. You have to pass two of four tests with a score of at least 70%. But even if you've already passed two tests, why not give this last shot your best effort, right? Health histories. You have to submit six health histories to graduate. You must submit them by module 40. You can always submit more than six, but you will not be able to graduate if you don't submit six by the outlined deadline in the course schedule. There's still plenty of time to practice and submit more, so go for it. You'll never regret practicing too much. And last but certainly not least, graduation. Your graduation is quickly approaching. You'll have an end of year virtual celebration with us and your classmates, so check the course schedule for the date and time. Because your classmates are from all over the world, the celebration is virtual. We really hope you can attend as it's so important to acknowledge and celebrate your accomplishments. You might be thinking, okay, so now what? What happens next? Well, first of all, you'll receive your certificate in the mail about eight to 12 weeks after graduation. Make sure your address is updated in the student profile prior to your graduation date to prevent mailing delay. Second, in the Help Center, you'll find all kinds of information about how to join our ambassador network, maintain alumni connections, continue your IIN education with advanced courses and educational partnerships, and much more. So those are a few things to know post-graduation. In this final check-in, I want to circle back to your intention one more time. What was your intention when you started the health coach training program? What is it now? Has it shifted or evolved? Wherever you are right now is exactly where you're supposed to be. And you have the power to go wherever you want to go. This brings me to my tip for this check-in. Carry your intention forward. No matter which path you're traveling, the key to honoring your intention is allowing it to fuel your actions. In other words, only you can stay accountable to your intention. So grab a notebook or even a post-it and write down one intention that feels most important to you right now. What intention arises when you tap into your intuition and gut? Do you have to make some adjustments to your previous intention? If so, do it. Just take time to settle into one intention. Now, set a weekly intention state where you can sit down with your journal to revisit and refine your intention. During each date, you'll write down three practical action steps you can take that week to make your intention a reality. Small, consistent steps will help you keep aligned with your vision. Pause the video now to set your intention state. Okay, let's recap. Your fourth and final test is coming up soon. Be sure to submit at least six health histories by module 40. Celebrate, 
and carry your intention forward. Before we wrap up, take a minute to think about what kind of support you're needing during the end of the course. What would help you graduate from the health coach training program feeling confident and successful? Pause the video and give yourself space to reflect on that. How do you feel? We're here for you however we can be, and we want to empower you in as many ways as possible. Trust the process, and best of luck as you finish your journey through the Health Coach Training Program.